What if you want to go to mime school? <laughs> if you hadn't kept punching it, it would have been fine. Who the hell is King Vidor? Which is going to be my new pickup line. <laughs> Welcome to Up Yours Downstairs, the podcast that has far too much albumin that is protein in its urine. I'm Kelly Anakin. And I'm Tom Schneider. We are properly married. You make it sound like a living thing. Oh, Tom, you know our marriage is as dead inside as Thomas's hand. <laughs> uh, we do have a new country to report. Wow, we fact. spoke too soon. That's right. Uh, it is the Dominican Republic. So th- that's exciting. Yeah, very <laughs> exciting. Just a reminder, if you are joining us for the first time, feel free to give us a shout on Twitter. Our handle is at five, the number five, Maggie (laughs) Smiths. You can find us on Facebook by searching up yours downstairs, or you can send us an old-fashioned telegram, a.k.a. email, by sending a letter to upyoursdownstairs at gmail.com. Yeah, don't try to send an actual telegram as they no longer exist. I think they do. I'm not sure Western Union stopped. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, a few years back. Western Union stopped. Stop. <laughs> no more telegrams. Stop. <laughs> Seriously, stop. Stop. <laughs> That's the last telegram anybody ever sent. <laughs> Just stop. Over and over and over again. Yeah. Speaking of which, it's time to dive into select telegrams from our cousins. First step. Cousin Jennifer writes, Dear Cousins, I discovered your podcast after I was unable to spark sufficiently stimulating conversation regarding Downton Abbey in my house. I just wanted to comment on the little room Thomas escorted Molesley into in episode three. If you noticed, the interior of the door was green, or specifically green base. The material all servant doors were covered in to muffle sounds from downstairs and to prevent them from intruding on upstairs. Hmm. I believe the door Thomas was opening was to one of the many unobtrusive stairways scattered about Downton Abbey so that servants could pop in and out with minimal intrusion into the family space. Sort of like all the secret staff doors at Disney. I believe there is a memoir of servant life entitled Behind the Green Bay's Door. Looking forward to your next podcast. Very truly yours, Cousin Jennifer. Yeah, okay. that's very interesting. It's yeah. a detail that totally escaped me. Yes, that is I excellent. did notice that we had not seen that room before. Right, right. So, yeah. Yeah, that's nice. And actually, that behind the green bay sounds very vaguely familiar to mm-hmm. me, so I might have heard of it. Next, we have a telegram from Cousin Scott, who writes, Hi, Cousins. The argument against involving Dr. Clarkson in delivering Sybil's baby was advanced by Lord G on grounds that he misdiagnosed Lavinia Squire. In your considered opinion, is there any truth to that? I thought that the Spanish flu was well enough known, and he had noted the swift manner in which it operates. Namely, just as one seems to be recovering, it relapses and kills the patient. So was Lord G just making stuff up to create doubt about Dr. Clarkson? Or was this a rational concern on the part of Lord G? Your Kentucky cousin, Scott. See, this is interesting because sort of in the lead up, like when people were kind of, you know, they weren't like spoiling anything, but they mm-hmm. kept hitting on the fact that Dr. Clarkson, you know, is known for his misdiagnoses. Right, right. Um, and most of them, I think, had seen this episode. Mm-hmm. And I guess we're agreeing with Lord Grantham. But I mean, I, I, I would not say that that is true about him. Right. What I would say about the the specific case of the Spanish flu, I would say it's a case where it wasn't Dr. Clarkson's fault. That was just how the Spanish flu worked. But, you know, it's the doctor's job to cure people. And when, you know, when he does something that goes so wrong, even though it was outside his powers, 
he's he's going to get blamed because mm-hmm. that's human nature. I guess the thing that surprised me, you know, I'm not surprised to hear Lord Grantham say this because he clearly is operating in his own mm-hmm. reality. Right. But I was just surprised that so many of our cousins were so sort of vindictive about it. Right. I I agree with that. I mean, I think I, I will say that what I would say about this is that it's one of the less egregious things of Lord Grantham just mm-hmm. because he's not a doctor. Doctors are just supposed to do their job and fix people, and yeah. when they don't, they get blamed, and that's that's yeah. just life. Yeah, I really – I have no problem with anything Dr. Clarkson has done through the course of the series. I mean, yeah. he gave he in on the like dropsy early on. physician. <laughs> yeah, yeah, agreed. So that's how we feel about that, cousins. Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm sure we'll discuss mm-hmm. more. Next, we have a telegram from the long-lost dowager cousin, Jackie. Hooray! Cousins, while listening to your recap of Series 3, Episode 4, I was struck by your exclamation of, Sir Anthony and Lady Edith, I still ship it. While I wish all the romantic happiness in the world for her, I've moved on to just shipping Edith slash awesomeness. She doesn't need a damn man to be happy and or awesome. She is too epic for that old man or any other who doesn't realize what a cat she is now and doesn't act accordingly. Dowager cousin, Jackie. P.S. You and I have quite similar taste in TV. Would I like Oz? Second things first. Yes. All right-thinking people <laughs> with a very high tolerance for A, melodrama, yeah. B, anal rape, and C, really graphic murders uh, yeah. would love Oz. Yeah. I mean, it's really surprisingly similar you, to Downton Abbey. Yeah. And you you just... like. The occasional plot twist that's so ridiculous that it makes you question why you like the show, but it always pulls you back in. But, like, also, it's got B.D. Wong and Rita Moreno. That's true. They do a whole episode that's a musical <laughs> featuring B.D. Wong singing Tori Amos's Leather. <laughs> now, if you don't want to watch that, I don't care to have a conversation with you. Uh, so, I guess, Dowager Cousin Jackie, yes, you should watch Oz <laughs> if you would like to continue conversing with me. Apparently so. Uh, yeah, it's great. I mean, it is pretty ridiculous. It was really the first of the HBO mm-hmm. sort of prestige dramas, so there's a lot of, of things to criticize about it. Right. But you do also get to see a lot of your favorite sort of HBO day players yeah. in, in very early roles. Like, almost, you know, half of the cast of The Wire shows up at some point. Uh, the guy who played the head of the vampire authority in True Blood <laughs> is in there as the evil Governor Devlin. Yeah. It's fantastic. It is, it is. Also... As much as you and I enjoy hating Lord Grantham, <laughs> uh, McManus, who is the warden of Emerald City, mm-hmm. so much more hateable. It's fantastic. Yeah, it's very true. There's a young Edie Falco in her <laughs> pre-Sopranos days. There's, you know, riots. It's amazing. Yeah. You can hear about all this in our hypothetical podcast about Oz that will never exist. Yes, indeed. <laughs> uh, but back to the Edith question. You know, you're not wrong. I, I think... We're still grieving for the way she was treated and demanding that that justice be rectif- uh, injustice be rectified. But I have to say, the farther away from it I've gotten, and yeah. the direction that they've taken her in, yeah. Well, this show has never been long on women actually doing anything interesting. True. For a long period of time, I mean, look what happened to Sybil. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, they're taking Edith in a direction that I wasn't expecting. So, yeah. yeah. All right, I'll ship the awesomeness. Yeah. Audith. <laughs> Next, we have a telegram from Cousin Kristen. Dear Cousins Kelly and Tom, first let me tell you how critical your podcast is to my sanity. I'm in my last trimester and sleep is becoming a thing of the past. I can't wait each week for your podcast to come out so I have something to entertain me into the wee hours as I lie awake. If only you could podcast every day. 
Of course, Julian Fellows did nothing to help my cause by writing Sybil's storyline. That's really helping my sleepless nights. Also, I must tell you, I discovered your podcast after a good friend of mine from Dayton, Ohio. Shout out to Cousin Sarah. Hey, hey! Hey! Introduced me to you. So thank you for sharing your love of and issues with Downton in such a great format. It rules. As for this season, I just wanted to share one frustration. What is up with Lady Mary? It's like season two never happened for her. Remember all the praying over Matthew's picture, wishing him well with Lavinia as her heart was breaking, nursing him when he had no chance of a normal life? It was all selfless and reflected true love. And now that they're married, she's his adversary? She hasn't taken his side once. What the hell? Ugh, a continued sore spot for me. Thanks again. Can't wait for the rest of season three to air. Cheers from Ohio, Cousin Kristen. You know, I hadn't really thought about Mary's behavior in context of season two, but mm-hmm. it really, yeah, that's well, kind of annoying. I actually had thought about it, and to me, I, I the, the conclusion I've drawn from it, and I think this is me rescuing Baron Fellows' inconsistency <laughs> out of my own construction, but I, to me, this is all about how never let it never letting people spend time together before they're married is a bad idea yeah i mean i think matthew was just an idea to her for so long mm-hmm. that a she liked him and b he was going to fix everything about her life and downton abbey and then she gets married and he's you know this guy and he's fine and she still likes him fine but now what does she do with her life now this was the only thing that she had to look forward to mm-hmm. and now this is it and i think I can see a disillusionment happening there. Yeah. Okay. And that, so that's, again, I don't think that's really it. I think it's just sloppy writing, but that's, that's my interpretation. Next, we have a telegram from Dame Phoenix. My dear cousins, Kelly and Tom, after a rewatch of seasons one and two of Downton, I have come to see the error of my ways. I humbly beg your forgiveness. I agree with you both. Shank Bates. (laughs) I really think now that he's guilty, there's too much evidence otherwise. I'm also on Team Edith as well, even though I am a self-proclaimed spinster. She may be forced into it. And damn it, she looked beautiful. Mm -hmm. God's damn Sir Anthony. That old bastard needs to get a really horrible disease where his bits fall off. (laughs) I put a curse of pox on him and all his descendants. Sorry, he made me very angry. I agree with you about McGee. She must be snorting the good stuff because she's very (laughs) insightful, which is odd. Furthermore, fuck that Irish monkey Branson. Kindest regards, your ever faithful of angry cousin, Dame Phoenix. Uh, well, we're always happy uh, <laughs> to welcome with open arms a convert to the church of Shank Bates. That's right. We, uh, we take collections up to deprive him of his leg brace or whatever, his yeah. cane. Although I guess he doesn't need it anymore. Yeah, apparently not. It's all, all settled yep. there. He's, uh, been faking legs, his limp the whole time. Legs generally heal themselves, yeah, I think. Yeah, especially as, after traumatic war injuries. Right. As you get older, you become more agile. Maybe we just missed the scene, uh, where <laughs> Dr. Clarkson was like, you've been misdiagnosed. <laughs> it was just a slight bruising around your knee. <laughs> If you hadn't kept punching it, it would have been fine. <laughs> I just kept pretending it was Vera. <laughs> Next, we have a telegram from Cousin Isaac. Who writes, Hello, cousins. Just wanted to let you know how much I'm enjoying your podcast. I'm catching up on the latest episodes during a grueling week at work, and thanks to you, it's making it easier. I wanted to comment on your annoyance that Thomas's evil scheme to get the Crawleys to think that O'Brien was quitting went nowhere. Yes, it's true that there was no endgame and that it could all be traced back to him. So why did he put this ridiculous scheme into play? Because Thomas is the worst evil mastermind ever. 
Think about it. Has one single one of Thomas's evil schemes actually worked out the way he intended? In the first episode, his plan to blackmail the Duke with the letters went literally up in flames. In episode 5, he gets caught stealing wine, and when he tries to blame it on Bates, it backfires. Episode 7, he gets caught stealing from Carson's wallet and has to go to war to avoid punishment. In series two, after the war, Thomas tries a venture in the black market, which is a huge fail, leaving him without savings or a job. And remember that time he kidnapped, dognapped, Robert Crawley's dog and then went and lost him? Thomas is outwitted and caught at every turn, making him the worst schemer since Phineas and Ferb's Dr. Hines doofenshmirtz. He is a moron and a big sack of fail. It's the only logical explanation. Either that, or Julian Fellows doesn't know how to write intelligent antagonists. Keep up the amazing work. If you read this telegraph on the podcast, please give my wife Amy, also a fellow listener and fan, a shout-out for me. Hey! Hey! Hey, Amy! Thanks, Isaac. Yeah, I mean, I think it's been pretty clear throughout Downton Abbey that Baron Fellows does not know how to write intelligent antagonists. Certainly, yes. Or, you know, how to write them intelligently. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, just O'Brien and Thomas and Vera Bates... None of them ever make any real sense. I mean, what does Vera Bates get out of anything she's done? Right. Oh, and I have much more to say on that Oh, topic. I know you do. Yes. Believe me. Yeah. I mean, I will say, you know, again, the difference between this scheme and the others, the others went wrong. You know, the Duke found the letters. Yes. He got overseen doing things. This one couldn't have worked. Well, he showed him, like, he pulled them out in his presence. That's pretty stupid. Well, yeah. Like, if you're going to blackmail. Oh, wait, no, no, no. no the no, Duke no. They, did go yeah, and steal the Duke, them. Okay, never yeah, mind. Yeah, yeah. Good point. Yeah, he Maybe just got. Just, sometimes he just gets out schemed. That's one thing. Yeah, but he. We're, nobody's saying he's a good schemer. He's a bad. Schemer. He's a bad schemer. He's like Swiper on Dora the Explorer. <laughs> that guy can't catch a break. <laughs> <laughs> swiper, no swiping. <laughs> Foiled again. Uh, finally, we have a very fascinating and lengthy telegram from cousin Alex. Dearest cousins Kelly and Tom, I recently started listening to your podcast and I absolutely love it, especially all the historical tidbits you include. When you were talking about Branson's weak sauce Irish revelry, I was reminded of a way better Irish revolutionary I, re I researched in college, Sir Roger Casement. As a young man, he worked as an agent for the British Foreign Office in Africa, where he was sent to investigate reports of atrocities that were being committed in the Congo Free State. If you don't know anything about that, here's the quick version. King Leopold II of Belgium used to own what is pretty much modern-day Congo as his private property. There happened to be a ton of rubber trees in that area, and at that time, rubber was very lucrative, but harvesting it was back-breaking work. Since King Leopold operated at a pro level when it came to oppressing his underlings, his own private army of forced public officers would essentially enslave the native Congolese, kidnapping women and children to force the men to work, summarily executing people for no reason, and maiming children as punishment for villages not collecting their quota of rubber. One of the officers, known for his harem of kidnapped women and row of heads decorating his lawn, is thought to have been the inspiration for Mr. Kurtz and Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. So, you know, bad stuff. Caseman's report of these atrocities was the first to have the official backing of the British government, and he personally campaigned for years to get the international community to do something about it. The movement succeeded, and he later investigated and published another report about the same kinds of abuses being committed by rubber companies in Brazil against the Putumayo Indians. In 1911, Casement was knighted for his humanitarian accomplishments. Two years after he was knighted, he resigned from the Foreign Office to become a full-time Irish revolutionary to agitate for home rule. Along with speeches and fundraising, Casement was a recruiter for the Irish Volunteers, the forerunner to the IRA. 
Shortly before World War I began, he traveled to America to raise money, and then to Germany after World War I started, using a forged passport, where he hoped to buy weapons and recruit from Irish prisoners of war. Casement and the other militant Irish nationalists wanted Germany to declare that they would fight for Irish independence. The German high command essentially told Casement to fuck off, but they let him recruit a handful of Irish prisoners of war who didn't want to spend the rest of World War I hanging out in Germany, and quickly shipped him off back to Ireland on a German U-boat. On April 21st, 1916, when the German captain sent him and two other rebels off in a small landing boat, he asked Casement if he needed anything else, to which Casement replied, because he is a way more epic Irish revolutionary than Branson, only my shroud. Hmm. A few hours later, he was captured by the British and imprisoned for his involvement in the Easter Rising. However, because of his humanitarian efforts before, Casement had a lot of friends in high places. He was briefly roommates with Joseph Conrad in Africa, friends with, Je- with George Bernard Shaw, Arthur Conan Doyle, and worked closely with people like Asquith, Sir Edward Grey, and Winston Churchill. However, almost every one of his powerful friends came down on the side of the British government called and called for his imprisonment. Only Shaw, who drafted a speech for the casement for his trial, and Conan Doyle, who donated 700 pounds to his defense, came to his aid. Casement was stripped of his knighthood and languished in prison until his execution in, in August 1916. Another interesting thing about Casement is something called the Black Diaries, which are a set of his diaries which reveal his homosexuality. Historians debate whether or not they are a forgery, but most people agree that they are genuine. I read a little bit of them, and they're very sad, since since it appears Casement was very aware of how ostracized gay men were, and kept his sexuality a secret, and he only ever indulged himself with male prostitutes. The Black Diaries were not brought up at his trial, but they were circulated after his conviction to urge the British government to execute him instead of imprisonment. On another note, since I'm listening to your podcast out of order, I happen to be listening to the one where you talk about the reasons why World War I happened. If anything, it is way more of a comedy of errors than you let on. For one thing, the man who was assassinated, Archduke Franz Ferdinand, was not the first heir, nor the second, but the third man to be the heir to the Austro-Hungarian throne. Essentially, he was the equivalent of what Matthew Crawley was in episode one of Downton Abbey. And while he wasn't the giant baby Matthew is, he still kind of sucked. The first heir had been Emperor Franz Joseph's son, Crown Prince Rudolf, who committed suicide when he was 30. Franz Joseph and his wife were understandably crushed, and Rudolf's death destroyed their marriage. After Rudolf's death, Franz Ferdinand's dad was the next heir, but he didn't want to be emperor and died shortly thereafter anyway. Emperor Franz Joseph was not too thrilled with his nephew Franz Ferdinand as his new heir because he thought Franz Ferdinand was a giant tool. Also, Franz Ferdinand had married a Czech countess for love, whom Franz Joseph thought was beneath his station. And also, Franz Ferdinand had some crazy ideas about reform, like giving more autonomy to the ethnic minorities in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. However, Franz Ferdinand remained unpopular since reformers thought he was too conservative since he was totally cool with being emperor and oppressing people. Conservatives thought he was too liberal since they wanted to advance past serfdom. And the public didn't get too attached to heirs since Franz Joseph seemed immortal. (laughs) So when Franz Ferdinand and his wife were assassinated, the overwhelming response from Austria was meh. Much more of a big deal were the allegations that the Serbian government was involved with the Black Hand, the Serbian terrorist groups full of idiots that by some miracle managed <laughs> to assassinate Franz Ferdinand in the first place. Until recently, there was no real proof that this was the case, but research has shown that a man codenamed Apis, the leader of the Black Hand, was actually Dragutin Dmitrievich, the head of the Serbian military intelligence. Sorry this telegram has been so lengthy. I look forward to your thoughts on the next episode. I, for one, hope something good finally happens for Thomas. He deserves more than an erotic pen pal. Warmest regards, Cousin Alex. 
Okay. Yes, lengthy, but quite interesting. Yes, and actually, I did actually know about uh, Sir Roger Casement pretty well, and I I can't believe I've never talked about him myself, uh, which I know him from a book that goes into a fair amount of detail about it called King Leopold's Ghost by Adam Hochschild, H-O-C-H-S-C-H-I-L-D, which is a book that I would recommend to anyone. Um, Roger Casement figures pretty highly in it, but there were a bunch of other people involved in that movement. Um, and it's, it's just very, I mean, it's, it's, it's tough at times. I mean, there are real atrocities that were going on, but if, if that sort of thing might interest you and if you want to learn more about Roger Casement, that would be a good place to start. Yeah, and uh, it's always nice when a cousin writes in with information that we've allowed to slip through the cracks. Yes, yes, indeed. And so for that reason, Cousin Alex, congratulations. You're our cousin of the week. Congratulations. Wear it well. <laughs> Be careful what you write in your diary. <laughs> yes. Which I believe brings us now to the recap of what, if it were an episode of Friends, would be referred to as the one where Sybil dies. (laughs) Yes. Just getting that out of the way in the beginning. Right. You know, Uh, usually we're a bit more chronological, but there's no point with this episode. uh, It's the one where Sybil dies. You should just know this probably is not going to be as much of a rip-roaring good time (laughs) as this podcast normally is. As it was extremely difficult for me to type our recap because I couldn't see the computer <laughs> screen through my copious tears. Right. Oh, my God. Yes. As we said on various social media platforms, this is the reason that Downton Abbey is a great show. Yeah. If it weren't for all the stupid murder prison crap oh, right. and, you know, the wacky adventures of Ethel in the kitchen. Yeah. You know, this would have been possibly the perfect episode of Downton Abbey. Yeah. I mean, it may still be the perfect it episode. It may be the best one they've had. It was really, really good. It was really, really excellent. Yeah. Uh, we're probably going to cry. So if us crying makes you cry, which <laughs> I've heard from several uh, people, that that is something that exists. Perhaps don't drive or operate heavy machinery um, have during some, those moments. Some Kleenex nearby, yeah. you know, uh, some sort of comfort object, a snuggie. <laughs> uh, so let's go ahead and, and dive in here. Or, or a stiff drink, if that's your Ooh. thing. <laughs> Wish we had one. And well, it's only, you know, like noon. I, I know. <laughs> in case you ever wanted to know when we record these podcasts, <laughs> it's early afternoon. A peek behind the curtain. <laughs> so here we go. <clears throat> a, a note of clarification also, by the way, on this. Kelly had been spoiled uh prior yes. to watching the episode i had not been spoiled per se but i had gotten the idea i ha- i had my suspicions about what was going to happen in this episode mm-hmm. and from the first shots of the episode they they really they they foreshadow the it pretty the cinematography on this episode was actually really ambitious it was and i really liked it a lot mm-hmm. i i thought it was it was good at sort of unsettling you without telegraphing too much. Right. Because, I mean, this first shot of the episode is of Dr. Clarkson arriving, mm-hmm. I think, by the back entrance, which yeah. we've never seen before. Yeah, and we've certainly never seen the Abbey shot from this angle. And also, there are multiple times in this episode, there are wide shots of Downton Abbey at night. Which generally mm-hmm. they we've generally only seen the, for the daytime, right? We'll we'll see it at night, but just up by the door as people right. are coming and going. We don't get that full shot of of the Abbey in darkness, um, which again, really nice way mm-hmm. of not telling, but well done, laying director the of this episode, whose name I meant to look up but <laughs> failed to do. Right, agreed. So read the credits. <laughs> 
So upstairs, Dr. Clarkson uh, emerges from Sybil's room and tells Sybil and McGee, uh, the labor pains have stopped. Nothing's going to happen yet. Lord Grantham says something about it being a false alarm. And he says, no, it just means that the womb is preparing itself for birth, which McGee interrupts him and says, uh, Lord Grantham doesn't enjoy medical detail. Which you'd think Dr. Clarkson would know at this point. Right. You would think that. Also... By medical detail, she means the existence of women. Yes. He's not a fan. But I do like that Dr. Clarkson appears to be on a one-man crusade to, like, (laughs) educate Lord Grantham about this stuff. Yeah, yeah. So McGee just says, can we go back to bed? And yes, everybody can go back to bed. And and, uh, Mary says she'll see Dr. Clarkson out. And Lord Grantham says that Sir Philip Tapsell will be arriving the next day. Dr. Clarkson is not thrilled about this. He says something about if you think it advisable, but, you know, obviously there's nothing he can do. Then finally, Branson gets to talk to Dr. Clarkson about his wife and just confirms that nothing is wrong, everything's going fine. So, nothing to worry about, everybody. Yeah. (laughs) I don't see any problems happening. Yeah. Apparently, it's down at uh, breakfast the following day, and Ivy is saying that she'd rather give birth in a city where they have all the modern inventions, which I fully agree with. Right. And Anna is very skeptical about being very far away from everyone that she knows and trusts in that situation, uh, to which I have to say, who exactly is it that you know and trust, Anna? She. It seems like it's just that murderer. She would rather give birth in murder prison. <laughs> Mrs. Patmore comes in and says Ivy shouldn't be talking about babies and that she can wait for that a little further down the road. Right. Uh, but Jimmy Kent chimes in and says he thinks it's always good to be prepared. And Tommy says he bets Jimmy Kent is always prepared. Oh, wink, wink. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Carson shuts that topic down, completely oblivious to the homoerotic undertones, I guess. <laughs> right. He's but- like, That's, there'll be no talk of French letters at this breakfast table. <laughs> Not while I have breath in my body. Yes. So doesn't want to hear anything about preparedness. No. He's not a fan. So uh, he then tells everybody to get about their work, but to be quiet around the gallery, which is near to where Lady Sybil is. And she's Mm -hmm. in a delicate condition. Right. Ivy expresses excitement about the baby, but Daisy just comes in and bitches at her. (laughs) I don't think it'll make any difference to you. Now get back to work. (laughs) And it's hilarious. Yeah. Even O'Brien. Yeah. She's like, damn. <laughs> She's like, I gotta start taking notes. Yeah, and I, I had the same look on my face as O'Brien. I will say this, Bitchy Daisy is my new favorite Daisy. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> the many faces. <laughs> it's really just the one. Uh, up in McGee's room, McGee is having breakfast in bed, which, by the way, it really does seem like a hassle. Like, you can't move until you mm-hmm. finish breakfast or you'll spill everything. Yeah. But uh, in any case, and they're discussing... The plans for the new doctor, uh, Lord Grantham said that they can't risk Sybil's health by letting Dr. Clarkson deliver the baby after he misdiagnosed Matthew and missed the signs with Lavinia. Which, again, I would clarify, he didn't say he misdiagnosed Lavinia. That's Because true. he didn't misdiagnose her. He just thought that the, he had a – he misprognosticated and he thought that well, she would be all right. Well, and also in fairness, how many – like there were what? Like three other peop- – three people were sick? Something like that. Well, he thought yeah. Molesley was sick, or Molesley right, thought he was right, sick, but it right. turned out he was just wasted. So I guess just the two. So just make G and Carson. But still, I mean, yeah. it's a big house, yeah. and none of those people's rooms are anywhere <laughs> near each other. Yeah. Yeah, McGee says that Lord Grantham is being unfair to Clarkson, which we agree with. Mm-hmm. Not egregiously so, but really. Well, I mean, look, it doesn't matter 
what his opinion is about whether or not Dr. Clarkson has misdiagnosed people or not. He does have familiarity with the family. Right. He knows the difference between normal and not normal. Right. And this whole debate just makes me wonder who it was that delivered uh, the girls. Right. You know? Right. Because, I mean, obviously, I, you know, Dr. Clarkson, I don't think, was there at that time. Yeah. Potentially. Although they do say that he's known them all their lives. Yeah. So he may have been around, you know, as an apprentice or something like that. Yeah, it's hard to say. You know, I mean, it's also my personal theory that at the time, you know, that it came for McGee to deliver, probably her mother came over. One would and think. And just took control of the whole thing. Yeah. And she just seems like that kind of character. Yeah. Shout out, yeah. Mac L. That's right. We missed you. We do miss Come you. Come back. Come back to Downton Abbey. Yeah. Fill the Sybil-shaped void. <laughs> Yeah, I just, I'm curious how they've handled that in the past and sort of how the Dowager Countess handled it. Mm-hmm. I just, I feel like that's kind of a, a egregious omission that there is no discussion on how these things have been handled in the past. Right. Cause it's like, this isn't, you know, a totally new thing. Right. Other members of your family have been born. <laughs> right. All of them, in I fact. I think we can but yeah, so they they basically agree to let Clarkson sort of sit in mm-hmm. with Sir Philip. And I would note that in this scene, McGee is using her "be nice to Lord Grantham" method, mm-hmm. um, which which is a, a method that I'm sure she has much experience with and is often effective because Lord Grantham is very manipulable. Yeah, and so I mean, she only gets a half victory in this scene. I just say note for future reference: this is McGee playing nice. Which she may not always do. Yes. Down in the servants' hall, Jimmy Kent uh, looks perplexed, which <laughs> does not go unnoticed by Miss O'Brien with yeah. that hawk-like sense that she has for people in distress. Uh, he tells her that Mr. Carson has asked him to wind the clocks, which he says is a sure sign that he is being thought of by Mr. Carson as first footman, which apparently, like, can you not... Carson, just say who is? Like, it's been right. a while. If yeah. he's first footman, you need to say something. I would think Carson, of all people, would want it very clearly defined. Yeah. At any rate, Jimmy says he knows nothing about clocks, but O'Brien tells Jimmy to ask Thomas about it because he's the expert, which we knew. Yeah. We knew that, you know, his his dad was a clockmaker and he always had to fix the clocks. Nice continuity. Yes. And uh, Jimmy thanks her for the advice. Uh, she's also said, you know, if you get in with, with Mr. Barrow, then, you know, he's got the ear of his lordship and, you know. Yeah. And really, Jimmy Kent. Right. Like, has well, no one said anything about this woman to you? Particularly in this scene. Like, this advice might be might be taken better if you don't look and sound like one of the witches from Macbeth. <laughs> like, she's just, like, looming up next to him. And, oh, get in good with him, Thane of Cawdor. <laughs> You won't be first footman, but you'll get first footman. <laughs> Feetman? Shakespeare! <laughs> what the hell? Anyway, so he thanks her, and she says to think nothing of it. Uh, with her, like, soothsayery, like, oh, think nothing of it. Because <laughs> she's trying to destroy you. <laughs> she's not a woman born. Up in Sybil's room, Sybil is telling Mary how horrible she feels and that... And she does look horrible. She does. I mean, look, Jessica Finley-Brown, still as gorgeous as ever. Right. But they did a nice job making her look very uncomfortable and in distress. Yeah, yeah, agreed. And says that she cannot recommend a pregnancy to anyone. And Mary says that she does understand that, but she uh, is really looking forward to starting a family of her own. Really? 
not gotten that at any point. Well, I I mean, I think this is where that scene in the nursery makes sense now. Is it that they've been trying and she's they've just not trying, getting knocked up? And it's not working. And she doesn't want to talk about it because there's nothing to say. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't want to get angry at him, even though she is angry mm-hmm. at him. Because, again, this is the whole point of her life. Yeah. Her whole point of her life is to marry somebody that keeps the title in the family and then birth somebody that keeps the title in the family. Yeah. That's that's all that she's ever so been depressing. asked to do. Like what if you want to go to mime school? <laughs> she's got the eyebrows for it. <laughs> it's true. No, but I just I really feel that Mary is being severely underwritten this season. Agreed. I don't think we're getting any good insight into her state of mind or her motivations. Yeah, again, I'm writing great backstory for what I'm she's doing. Sure you are. But it's it it's coming from me, I admit. Yes, yes. I just it's just a shame because she yeah. used to be this very complex fun character to be around yeah and now it seems like julian fellows only has it in to do that for one crawly sister at a time <laughs> yeah so yeah. yeah in any case sybil had thought that maybe she was waiting so we know that it's starting to get noticed that it it's hasn't a happened very hard yet time to wait <laughs> right. as discussed previously when we were talking about methods of birth control yeah i'm just like i don't i don't know how you could be waiting unless they weren't having sex right which they were. They were most definitely having sex. Yeah. Sybil talks about the fact that she and Tom want the baby to be christened Catholic or baptized Catholic, mm-hmm. which they've said the word. It's the subject yeah, has come up. At last. Finally. I'm so happy. But she says now that, that you know, that would, have, would not have been a problem in Dublin, but now they're in Downton and she's concerned. And Mary says that, you know, you don't have to. This is your baby too. And she says that's fine with her she says i do believe in god and i think like feast days and angels and all that but i don't believe in i don't believe the vicar knows anything more about god than i do which sensitive topic first off we both misheard her as saying she doesn't believe in god or any of that which we thought was very ballsy we thought yeah but then of course it turned out that that was not what she said right but that it's fine. Everybody's entitled to their own beliefs. I don't know believing in God, fine, but I don't know why you believe in angels and feast days, but not in the I vicar. I thought she said she did not believe in all those things. Okay. Clearly, we had a very difficult time deciphering this scene. <laughs> Which I think she said she believes in God, but she doesn't care about victors and feast days and angels and all that. Okay. Well, I, I hope believe that you're that's right. what she said. Okay. Well, we'll go with that because that makes more sense. It makes much more sense. Yes. Yeah. And in any case. She loves Branson. This is what Branson wants, and it is no problem for her. So that's that's what she wants to happen. Yeah, and I I do wonder where the closest sort of you know Catholic parishes relative. Right. I don't know what sort of per capita. Yeah, it's is hard to say because it was never completely eradicated, even though mm-hmm. it was way underground for a lot of times. So I, I'm just not sure. Well, and they could technically baptize the baby Catholic themselves. Mm, yeah. Uh, in a pinch. Right. Regular right. old Catholics are deputized to do right. such things. I mean, I don't think they were hanging priests at this point. Right. I just, so I'm just, but I'm just curious how far they'd have to travel. Right. Right. So yeah, that's, that's an interesting question. And we, we may actually find out more about it. Oh, that's I, true. I, I can actually say that it may get discussed. <laughs> uh, so the nurse comes in and Mary says she'll let Sybil rest and she says that she will fight her corner with Travis should it come to that. And, 
A quick note on this scene. Note that Sybil didn't ask Mary to fight for her. That's true. Which is key to getting Mary on your side. Just lay out the problem. Let Mary decide for herself that she wants to help. Just a note if any of you are ever asking Mary for something, even though she's fictional. I do find it interesting... Then in this conversation, they're saying, oh, fighting your corner with Travis. I'm like, shouldn't you be more worried about fighting your corner with, oh, I don't know, your father? Well, yes. Yeah. Anyway, I guess we'll find out one way or the other. Right. Uh, wherever they keep the clock, <laughs> Thomas is teaching Jimmy how to wind the clock. Not a euphemism. Isn't it? Uh, look. <laughs> it is the sexiest this, clock winding. This is one of the sexiest scenes. That's true. Like, despite the fact that... Well, Jimmy Kent is still very ambiguous. Yeah. I, you know, I really... I can't tell how how his... Uh, yeah. I mean, I feel like by the end of this episode, I think, I, I think that he is straight. You know... I but kind of agree, but at the same time... It's not 100%. It could be that he is much more in the closet than Thomas is. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, it could be that he's concerned that, you know, he's going to lose his position right. if he doesn't kind of put a stop to this. Right. But Thomas is standing, like, right up behind him. Yeah. And explaining to him about how clocks are living things, and, you know, you got to wind it not too early in the morning and not in the evening, and, you know... Yeah. You got to be very careful with it. And uh, we get a look at his hand for the first time. Right. Uh, he's wearing kind of like a stylish, it looks like maybe a calfskin glove. Yeah. To sort of mask the, the, the deformity. This scene also makes me wonder if Julian Fellows has never had gay sex. Because <laughs> this seems very, like, uh, knowledgeable. <laughs> right. It seems like, yeah, this is how it goes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and just Thomas looks so happy. He really does. He's so happy talking about the clocks with his hand on Jimmy Kent's shoulder. Yeah. We just have never seen him look this happy. Yeah. It's 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 very nice. Mm-hmm. We like it. More more happy Thomas. Yeah. Less ineffectual scheming Thomas. <laughs> In murder prison. Bah! Yeah. I'll share a little story with you all. My dad's family, he grew up in a house that was right under the approach path for Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Fairborn, Ohio, which meant that every once in a while, in the middle of a conversation, a, like, giant bomber would descend right overhead and make a loud noise where nobody could hear anybody. And so the conversation would just stop, and we'd all think our own thoughts until it ended, and then we'd pick up the conversation where it was. That is the murder prison scene <laughs> Throughout this episode, every time it, every time I saw a shot with a blue filter, I just go. I just wish they'd made this a bottle episode. I know it's not really consistent with Downton Abbey. They're not concerned with like you know what the AV Club thinks, (laughs) Um, or maybe they are. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. But uh, you know, I think it would have been a more effective episode had they just focused on this and kind of kept everybody in the house and and. You know, let everything go. It's it's a momentous episode. Yeah. And it's really underserved by having to kind of check in with all this other bullshit. Right. Agreed. Because, I mean, this is like the lowest number of other subplots they've ever had. Yeah, it's, it's true. It's literally just Ethel and Isabel, and it's just Anna and Bates. Like, yeah. that's it. Yeah. Well, and, you know. There's a couple little, little, like, they do a little bit with the servants, what we just saw with Thomas and Jimmy, a bit with Daisy and Ivy. But, but that's it's, all self-contained it's, within the house. It's within the house, and it's not given any more time than it deserves. Yeah. In any case, thankfully we get a scene where Anna and Bates tell each other things we already saw happen. Good. I'm so glad. Yeah. 
just basically the whole uh, Mrs. Bartlett story. And Bates realizes that because she had pastry in her fingernails, she must have been making the pie that killed her at a time when Bates had already left and was on the train. Therefore, she killed herself to get revenge on Bates, to Um, frame him for it. She actually was making the pastry before Bates came for his tea. Oh. If you'll recall correctly. I didnn't recall correctly. Yes. The point is that Mrs. Bartlett saw Vera making the pie at a time that he was not there or something. Okay. This is why I was confused when we were watching it, because I don't really see how any of this is actual evidence. In any case... This is all hearsay. We'll all just take it as given that somehow this proves that Vera killed herself with the pie, which... I would like to join everybody else in the world and call bullshit on that. Yes. There's no way that that's... It's not consistent with her character. She wanted revenge on Bates, but she wouldn't have wanted revenge that she wasn't around to see. That's true. I mean, she was an energetic character Mm -hmm. that seemed very motivated and determined. You know, I mean, I don't... Nobody knows the depths of the human soul and everything like that. Mm -hmm. Maybe there was some... Maybe she really got so worked up about losing Bates, who she hadn't seen for years. And hated. And hated. Really hated. That she'd be willing to end it all to get back at him. But I don't buy it for a second. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's, I hate it. Okay. I just hate it. Tell us how you really feel. (laughs) In any case, they've discovered this. Anna says that, oh, I hope she's burning in hell. It's awesome. (laughs) And then Bates says, don't go down that road. What road? The road of hating dead people? (laughs) Where does that... What problems does that cause? Hate dead people all day long. Uh, Also, if she did kill herself, she is burning in hell. Right. That's true. I mean, if you believe in God, that's what happens to people who kill themselves. Yeah. Like, sorry. Yeah. It's true. Also, she was uh, not a good person. Yeah. She really wasn't a good person. Have you forgotten all the time she tried and succeeded in ruining (laughs) your life? Yeah. You'd think at least a little bitterness would be called for here. I I agree. He used to be bitter as hell. I know. Still think he killed her. I do too. (laughs) Because I don't think that this pie timeline clears anything up. (laughs) Although I really want pie now. Uh, Well, well. Every time I say pie, (laughs) my desire for pie increases tenfold. (laughs) You'd better stop saying it because we ain't got none. Oh, we could get some. Well, we have to do this podcast. (laughs) Fine. Listen, if you can send us some pie, that would be awesome. (laughs) Before we finish recording this podcast. Which is impossible. (laughs) Get a TARDIS. A pie TARDIS. (laughs) Damn it. I'm so hungry. Anyway. Over at uh, Isabel's house, Ethel is there for reasons I don't understand. I thought she pretty much dropped the mic. Yeah. She She was like out. Yeah. But uh, somehow she got lured back. Ugh. Maybe maybe Isabel posed as a client. <laughs> <laughs> With a mustache. <laughs> I hear you like to uh, give people... Um, uh, uh, Mrs. Bird, what's the word for sex? <laughs> I wouldn't know, Mom. <laughs> anyway, that's from my short one-act play. <laughs> Isabel Crawley. John for hire. Th- that's great. Uh, anyway, that was dumb. <laughs> Also dumb is this scene. True. Isabel is asking after Ethel's welfare, and Ethel says she's no longer hooking, and she'd rather starve than be a prostitute now that Charlie's taken care of, which I think is kind of dumb. It's like, you could probably do pretty well. Yeah. Like, if you're not, you know, Com- feeding compar- a baby. Compared to those other prostitutes, yeah. you seem to be in good shape. 
Isabel insists that Ethel come live at her house and work with Mrs. Bird in the kitchen, and then she'll have a respectable reference and, you know, can return to, you know, polite society. Ethel correctly points out that this is going to be far more complicated than Isabel will allow. For example, what will Lady Grantham and old Lady Grantham have to say about all this? Uh, Isabel is... uh really unconcerned once again just trying to get this you know single mother success story for her fundraiser right i I don't even think it's a fundraiser i think she's just trying to accomplish something in her entire life Hmm. i think she'll quit the whore institute the next morning (laughs) sorry found a workable whore (laughs) i knew this john costume would pay off (laughs) back at murder prison (gasps) the cellmate and the funny looking guard are (laughs) walking down a, a corridor saying that Bates is happy and that makes them sad. Um, <laughs> so at this point, we're pretty much on Team Craig here, I yeah, think. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, in, in the sense that we are paying any attention to these <laughs> these things at all. Right. So they, they need to get back at him, and what should we do? And the guard says, that'll take some thought. It does not take any thought. Shank him! Shank Bates! Shank Bates! Shank Bates! And, but they'll, they'll do something. And at this point, I, I wish we knew a single solitary thing about either of these two characters. I don't. Well, as long, if they're gonna be in the show. Don't care. Alright, I mean, that's, that's about- Tom, listen. All right. Julian Fellows killed off his only serviceable antagonists. Now he has to make new ones. And he's not about to waste precious, you know, murder prison <laughs> time filling us in on their backstories. Fair enough. Those blue filters are expensive. <laughs> I don't think that's true. Mary and Matthew are walking about the estate. And Mary compliments Matthew on the many cottages that have been renovated. But he is very concerned that so many of the farms have basically been left to rot one of which they are walking through. Right. Mary says, you know, that Lord Grantham would never turn people out just for getting old, uh, which seems to be the problem in this case, just this guy's too old to work a farm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Matthew says that Lord Grantham equates being businesslike with being mean or being middle class, yeah. like Matthew. And it, like to clarify, Matthew also does not want to kick these people out for being old. Correct. He will set them up in a cottage in the village and rent the farm to somebody that can work. Yes. It. Anyway, Mary kind of blows that off, which is actually a very, like, astute observation, I would (laughs) like to point out, and says that they have to get back because Sir Philip Thingy is getting in on the 7 o'clock train, which I don't know why I like that, and I hated the Mr. Pillbox thing so much. I know, but we we both liked it. Well, I think it's the word thingy. Yeah, it is the word thingy. Well, it's also setting up what's been clear from the beginning that everybody except Lord Grantham would rather have Dr. Clarkson. Yes. Uh, anyway, but she says, you know, Matthew needs to be there and, and hold Branson's hand through everything. And Matthew is saying, oh, you know, poor, poor Branson is so thrilled and terrified at the same time. And he says, you know, as I would be. And then he corrects himself, says, oh, as I will be. I'm definitely. Oh, right. I'm going to get you pregnant. Oh, it's happening. Oh, I'm going to get you so pregnant. No concern here. And Mary smiles the most pained smile. And then they walk away. And yeah. I'm like, you guys need to have an honest conversation about something at some point. Uh He'll lose his title if he ever has this <laughs> conversation. My dear fellow, <laughs> now that you're the heir to the Earl of Grantham, you must never have an honest conversation with any woman. We're stripping of your title. We can't say why. There was an indiscretion. <laughs> uh, at dinner, Sir Philip Thingy is there and dressed to the nines. 
And the Dowager Countess says that the Duchess of Truro is a big fan of his. And he obligingly uh, tells a story about how he got triplets out of the Duchess of Truro. I don't think they were triplets. Or, oh, I think was... just she had three sons. Oh, okay. He was I thought he was the story implying... of the first time. I, okay, I took okay. it to mean that he just delivered three of her that, children. Yeah, that, which is fine. Um, I wonder what his Yelp page looks like. <laughs> Not so good anymore. <laughs> yes, so he, he secured a dynasty. Blech. Yeah. But he, he sees no complications. He says that Sybil is both healthy and beautiful. Which, one of those things is not important. Oh, right. I mean, Branson smiles like an idiot because, of, you know, anytime uh, yeah, you, somebody yeah, yeah. says your wife is beautiful, you're like, yeah, <laughs> I own that. <laughs> That's right. McGee tells him that they've asked Dr. Clarkson to be around, too, and he dismisses the idea, but then says he supposes if it would that it's not necessary, but if it would comfort them, then he supposes it's all right. He's such a dick. Yeah. And this is where, listen, Philip Thingy, who is by far way more than Lord Grantham, the villain of this piece, oh, yeah. like, deserves way more blame than anybody else in this. First of all, right here, you need to either say yes or no. Mm-hmm. If your answer is no, then you need to enforce it. Mm-hmm. You're the... I mean, you're the doctor. Somebody has to be in charge in any situation. In this any is exactly situation, what happened where, when they were running the, you know, the convalescent home? Right. In Nobody any, would ever, you know, fully tell anybody else to completely butt out. Yeah, and if you're in a situation where quick decisions have to be made, there cannot be ambiguity about who is making mm-hmm. them, as is going to be demonstrated. Yeah, there was also another bit in here about Lord Grantham being shocked by. The human body but we look if we documented every time <laughs> this podcast would be eight hours long yeah carson was as well but did not make an ass of himself well that's because carson's way. a professional indeed after dinner branson says he's going to go upstairs and check on sybil and anna comes in in her horrible awful ladies maid dress mm-hmm. i hate this dress so much mm-hmm. uh, but she wants a word with lord grantham matthew then after lord grantham is you know spared in anna off to the library uh, Matthew corners Sir Philip Thingy and asks uh, if he could be infertile because of his war injury. And Sir Philip tells him that anxiety is the enemy of getting pregnant, which I'm not entirely sure is true. Right. I've known numerous teenagers who are <laughs> pregnant. And if you're going to tell me that they weren't anxious. Right. Like your body doesn't know the difference between being anxious about not getting pregnant and being anxious about getting pregnant. Mm-hmm. Anyway... He says he could run a test on, you know, to test Matthew's fertility, but, you know, he won't yet. Yeah. Uh, then McGee comes out and is like, oh, there you are. We'd wondered where you'd got to. And I was like, it's hard to tell who she's speaking to because her eyes are very unfocused. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I do think that Sir Tapple is right that they should just give it a few more months. I mean, it does just take no, a while I agree. sometimes. But the main thing that that uh, scene told me is just the fact that Matthew can't talk to Dr. Clarkson about it. Which is interesting, or it doesn't feel that he can talk to Dr. Clarkson about it. Even though Dr. Clarkson would keep it confidential, I'm, I'm confident in that. But it's just part of how I think he doesn't still feel like an insider as a part of the family. Right. That's true. Yeah. Well, and Dr. Clarkson is clearly the women's doctor. And Sir Philip Tepsall is definitely the men's doctor. True. Much in the way that George Cukor was viewed as a, uh, a, a women's director and oh what was his name king vidor i think 
Okay. I don't know. There were two directors on Gone with the Wind. Victor Fleming. No, Victor Fleming. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. Who the hell is King Vidor? He was somebody, but I don't remember who. Well, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> we all understand. Yes. And this brings us to one of our recurring segments in which our real maid's maid, Kelly Anakin, will give us a little fashion history in Fashion Backwards. That I will. So I have noticed, you know, Anna's new ladies maid outfit, as well as the fact that the, the ladies below stairs have changed their outfits a little bit. And I've been mm-hmm. trying to figure out sort of exactly how and why that happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was not coming up with anything particularly, so I reached out to our very favorite Edwardian expert, Evangeline Holland. She of EdwardianPromenade.com. Mm-hmm. And uh, she wrote back, and she says that what she, from what she can gather, the change in wardrobe below stairs came about for multiple reasons. First of all, the war, the servant problem, wherein those poor ladies and peeresses, sarcasm, LOL, <laughs> found it difficult and to find and retain good servants. Though domestic service was the largest source of employment for women, maids of all stripes were more likely to move around for better situations and better households. No longer did a girl enter one house at 12 or 13 and remain there until old age or ill health pu- pushed her out of service. The pool of girls who would normally go into service began to shrink as well, with many farmers and laborers' daughters choosing to leave the countryside and follow their brothers to major cities, where they could find work in factories or shops. This practice of eschewing domestic service for more freedom and sometimes better pay exploded during the war with the various munitions factories springing up across the country, the avenues for nursing, and the women's armies, wax, WRNs, etc. War work liberated the aristocratic young girl from the house, and it also liberated the working-class girl from the scullery. Secondly, post-war prosperity. Working-class women and ex-housemaids had their own wages to spend however they liked, and they spent it on the latest fashions. Countless memoirs of the day mention how aristocratic ladies grew drabber and drabber as working-class women grew smarter and more fashionable. You can only imagine that these women, with their first taste of silk stockings or hobble skirts or any other trend denied to them because of cost and suitability for their position, were not anxious to return to the boring, frumpy clothes of a housemaid once wartime prosperity ended and they reluctantly returned to service. Third, a more acute servant problem in the 1920s, hand-in-hand with pre-war mobility and wartime freedoms, women who did return to service demanded better pay, better hours, and better treatment, and ladies of the middle and upper classes had to give in to their demands because good servants were scarce. Finally, there were changes in the fashion industry, which we have discussed. True. Uh, The 1920s saw the rise of ready-to-wear industry and artificial silk, which decreased the sartorial distance between the haves and the have-nots. It was actually the factory workers who bobbed their hair first out of necessity and then out of defiance of the social order. Long hair was ladylike. And their aforementioned access to the latest fashions, purchased from department stores, made them more conscious of their physical appearance. As a result, if their mistresses bobbed their hair and wore calf-skimming gowns, the housemaids followed suit. But though their silhouette gradually followed that worn by the upper classes, they still wore their calico in the morning and their black in the afternoon to keep the class distinctions, of course. Mm -hmm. Uh, If anybody's interested in reading any further about these kind of changes, uh, there's a couple of books here that Evangeline recommends. Knowing Their Place, Domestic Service in the 20th Century Britain by Lucy Delap, D-E-L-A-P. Women in the 1920s by Pamela Horn and Life Below Stairs, The Real Lives of Servants, The Edwardian Era to 1939 by Pamela Horn. Uh, you can also check out Evangeline Holland's own books. She has published The Pocket Guide to Historical Research and also The Pocket Guide to Edwardian England. Oh. So you can find those on Amazon.com or wherever fine Edwardian books are sold. <laughs> now, in addition to that information, I was curious sort of what Anna's duties are now that she is a lady's maid versus being housemaid. Mm-hmm. 
And this information I actually found on the uh, Manor House website, which still exists. That's right. And has been an invaluable source of uh, <laughs> information for us. So uh, here are the duties of the lady's maid, according to the guide, I assume, that was given to Miss Morrison mm-hmm, at the right. time uh, of the Manor House experiment. Yes. She would have been woken at 7 o'clock by the second housemaid, who would bring her tea, a breakfast tray, and hot water with which to wash. All the other servants will take breakfast in the servants' hall at a quarter past eight. However, the lady's maid would be assisting the mistress of the house to dress at this time. Mm. Which is interesting, because we do often see both Anna and O'Brien at breakfast. Right, So it may be, you know, again... The lines are a bit blurred at Downton Abbey because it was technically the post-Edwardian era True. by the time we got there, so that may have changed. Yeah. Or Julian Fellows just don't care. Right. Before the mistress rises, you should put away any clothes from the evening before and prepare what she's to wear that morning. At 8 o'clock, you must wake the mistress of the house by bringing her tea and thin slices of bread and butter, a newspaper, and any correspondence. You should run her bath, help her to dress, and do her hair. Once the mistress is fully attired, and only if you have time, you may assist the first housemaid in dressing uh, the lesser woman of the house, in this case, Miss Anson. Right. Uh, but, you know, here, in Anna's case, it would be Edith. Yeah. So Edith, I guess, has left her own devices at this point. Or maybe a housemaid has, has taken over yeah. her lady's maidery. Possibly. Morning prayers are conducted in the main hall at quarter past nine. You should make every effort to attend. Not clear whether or not they do morning prayers at Downton Abbey. It seems like right. not. They seem like a pretty secular household They to do. Me. They do. At half past nine, while the mistress takes her breakfast, you must hide the personal effects in her bedroom and arrange outdoor clothes if she chooses to go riding or walking. Throughout the day, you must be ready to run any errands your mistress requires. After the family's breakfast, if the mistress intends to go out, you will need to assist her to change into her outdoor attire. It is customary for you to accompany the mistress if she is going out. At 11 o'clock, tea is served in the servants' hall. The servants' dinner is served at midday. You will take the meat course along with all the other servants in the servants' hall before retiring to the housekeeper's room for putting coffee and tea with the other upper servants. So... That would be Mrs. Hughes's parlor. Right, um, right. But again, we don't get to see much of that happening in Downton Abbey. Mm-hmm. Um, I also saw somewhere else that oftentimes ladies' maids would actually have their own parlor, much like the housekeeper. Oh, okay. Um, so, you know, again, par- probably narrative economy here. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I thought that was interesting. Yeah. In the afternoon, after dinner, providing that the mistress does not require any service, a uh, lady's maid may choose to busy herself with needlework or repairs to the lady's clothing or wash underwear and personal garments. And then providing that the lady's maid has achieved the consent of her mistress, uh, she can take her leisure time between half past two and four o'clock. At four o'clock, tea is served in the servant's hall. And then the mistress will require assistance to dress for afternoon tea, which is taken at five o'clock. And then at that point, uh, she has to tidy up the ladies' bedrooms again and begin to prepare to dress them for dinner. From half past six onwards, you should make yourself available to assist the ladies of the house to dress for dinner. The mistress of the house should always be the focus of your attentions. Any other women in the house should only be assisted if you have the time and the mistress is fully attired and in no further need of your service. Otherwise, the first housemaid will attend to her needs. So probably whoever first housemaid is, we don't care about who that is in Downton Abbey at the time, but... yeah. Between 8 o'clock and the servant's supper, you should tidy your mistress's bedroom, ensure that her flowers are fresh, her cologne bottles are filled, her hairbrushes are cleaned, and that she has an adequate supply of cosmetic preparations. Before you leave, you must iron the top sheet on her bed. Oh. Bleh. Yeah. Supper is served in the servant's hall at half past nine. The remaining part of the evening is to be spent at your leisure until the mistress retires to bed and when you will need to assist her in dressing and loosen and brush her hair. 
Last thing at night, you should place your boots outside your bedroom door for the second footman to collect and clean and return to you first thing in the morning. So presumably at this point, nobody cleans them since nobody knows who's second footman. Yeah, good point. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but I found that very interesting. Yeah. I mean, there is actually a significant amount more of leisure time built in yeah. for yeah. the ladies' maid, so you can see why it was such a sought-after position. Yeah. Uh, and sort of why Miss O'Brien has been so, you know, high and mighty all this time. Mm-hmm. You know, she does, you know, she has her work and she does it, but it's just very right. minimal in well, comparison just, with everything else. I mean, it's still, you know, it's still a, a full day's work, but it's also, I mean, the work itself not only do you have to spend less time on it, but it's not as horrible. Exactly. You know, you're not scrubbing and cleaning, mm-hmm. which is, you know, I mean, unless you've got an absolutely awful mistress. Yes. I'd far rather be, you know, holding earrings or whatever. Yeah. That is one of the duties. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So that's some um, information about ladies' maids and maids' attire. All right. Well, thank you. You're welcome. Back to the episode. Yes. Lord Grantham is in the library talking to Anna, wondering why the police missed the case of the poisoned pastry. Uh, I assume because they agreed it was bullshit. <laughs> yeah. I also, th- you know, you half expect Lord Grantham to say, what a plot on our criminal justice system. <laughs> Best not tell anyone. I'd hate to hurt that judge's feelings. Yeah. He then suggests that Mrs. Bartlett may not want to set Bates free, which might make it difficult for them to get her testimony and apply it to the case in order to overturn his verdict. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he says he'll he'll ring up Murray and arrange for him to come to Downton the following day to speak to Anna and then go and see Bates at the prison and, and see what they can work out. Yeah. At breakfast the next morning, Edith has gotten a surprising letter. Uh, apparently the editor of The Daily Sketch. Oh, uh, our old friend. Yeah. Uh, saw her letter to the Times, which means that they did print the letter. We were slightly unsure about that. And wants to give her a weekly column to write about whatever she wants. Booyah! Yeah. Matthew is very correct and polite about this. He's like, oh, you know, what's what's the deal? It's good news. Very encouraging. Uh, Lord Grantham says they just want your name and title. That's what they're paying for. That's all they care about. Matthew says that he found the letter rather interesting, but Edith says, don't bother. She's always a failure in this family. And it's also interesting. It's like, what is she really doing with her name and her title? She doesn't get anything out of it. Right. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Edith says there's always be a failure in this family, and then it gets out and leaves. And Lord Grantham sort of looks around after her like, did somebody just leave? (laughs) That can't be right. (laughs) At Isabel's house, Crawley House, Mrs. Bird is resigning after having been kept up all night by the thought of having to work with a prostitute because she's worried that people might look at her and think that she is also a prostitute. <laughs> Thus begins a scene full of backhanded compliments from Isabel, yeah. who says, nobody could look at you and think that, Mrs. Bird. <laughs> and we're like, not necessarily, like, were you at the horror? Did you see the horrors or did you just look at them? Yeah. Because. You're not telling me there's not one person in England that would pay to have an elderly cook, like, spank him. <laughs> Uh, anyway, Mrs. Bird is adamant she must pr- protect her good name. And actually, she gives her this whole spiel, and it seemed pretty clear to me that she was not trying to resign. Right. She, you know, just was like, you can't expect me to work with this woman. Yeah. Isabel, once again, being really good at the social cues, <laughs> gets very huffy and offers her a month's wages in lieu of notice. And she says, uh, she, sh- you know... Mrs. Bird says that her sister in Manchester, where she was before, says that there's plenty of work for a plain cook, mm-hmm. so she won't have much trouble finding another position. And uh, Isabel says, yes, well, they will find that in you, Mrs. Bird. And I'm like, what is your damage? Wow. 
for somebody that you've been essentially living alone with for a well, I mean not for that long, but have been living with for years and years. Yeah, it's very unceremonious. And there's nothing like, oh, you know, I'm doing something unconventional. I totally understand that you're apprehensive. Right. Like just no attempt is made to mitigate this. Yeah. I was wow. Yeah. It's very shocking and just rude. I guess she's just sort of sick of people being rude to prostitutes, which is not the worst impulse to have. No, but but at the same time, look, you can have your high-minded ideals, but you also have to kind of keep your bearings in what the actual situation is and how it affects other people. I'm not saying that it's right that Mm -hmm. Mrs. Bird doesn't want to work with Ethel. I mean, apart from the fact that Ethel's like super annoying. Yeah. But I mean... You know, what did she think was going to happen? Ethel tried to warn her that it was going to be complicated. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well. Back at Downton Down in the kitchen, Jimmy and Alfred are lounging around, uh, flirting with Ivy. Or sexually harassing her. It's hard to tell. I mean, at the time, I don't believe it was the difference. Uh, But but Jimmy asks her if she needs to know anything else about babies, and and Alfred is, is actually much more... Uh, flirty, if uh-huh. that's the word we're using. Which, again, in keeping with the slight ambiguity that we still have about Jimmy. Then Daisy comes in, sees all the boys trying to get with Ivy, and yells at her and says, you know, have you done this? And she has, and so she finds other things to yell at her about, and uh, then puts down a teacup and walks out. Emphatically. Yes. She's really turning into a right Mrs. Patmore. Yeah. Except she's more like... <laughs> she's only at a... Yeah. <laughs> She's only going at about half speed yeah. and half pitch. Yeah. And Alfred and Jimmy are perplexed. Ivy says that Daisy just doesn't like her. And Ivy is a very positive person. She really is, or maybe just stupid. Yeah, I don't know, but she seems very happy and optimistic. I mean, for all she knows, she's going to spend the next 20 years getting yelled at by Daisy. Yeah, that's true. Although, as we just learned, she has more mobility than a generation ago. Yes. So she could always tell Daisy to piss off yeah in any case alfred again takes the lead and says that anybody that doesn't like ivy is crazy and ivy asks if jimmy agrees as jimmy far more attractive than alfred uh insanely so yeah yeah he's like the tim riggins (laughs) if alfred is landry (laughs) yeah yeah and ivy's tyra uh yeah sure we won't push this too far. Yeah, I think the Friday Night Lights Down Now you crossover is uh, <laughs> minimal at best. <laughs> we can all agree that Mrs. Bird and Buddy Garrity are damn near indistinguishable <laughs> from each other. Uh, Jimmy, however, is not drawn by Ivy. He's just kind of non-committable about it and m- takes his leave. Edith and Mary come downstairs for dinner and ask Branson how Sybil's doing, and he says that she's very restless, and they apologize that the baby couldn't be born in Dublin, you know, and they know how important it was to them for the baby to be born there. But Branson, in the first, you know, really, like, reasonable response he's had to anything so far this season, Mm -hmm. says, you know, that Sybil, you know, her health and safety are just much more important than going to Dublin. So he's he's kind of come around on this. Yeah. There's a little a little outreach to Branson here in that scene, which is nice. And almost not even condescending at all. Yeah. Like a kind of as a peer, which we haven't really seen from Marriott. I mean we haven't she hasn't been particularly rude to him, but much more in this scene, much more open to Well, and I mean, it's been, you know, some time has passed. And I think, you know, they have all gotten used to him to an extent. Right, right. 
In the drawing room, Edith greets the Dowager Countess. Uh, she's going to be there every night until the baby arrives. I get sad thinking about her having her like dinners all by herself all the time. Yeah. Although maybe after all those years of running that house, she's just tired of it. Yeah. It, it would make sense. She doesn't have to dress the same way. Yeah. But in any case, she's she's there now. She's going to stay every night until the baby arrives because she says she hates getting news secondhand. McGee says that she is going to ring up Dr. Clarkson. Lord Grantham and Sir Philip Thingy uh, try to say, no, no, no. Sir Philip has decided that it, it might cr- cause confusion or something like that. And McGee shuts that down. She says, I've given him my word. And there's no answer to that. Again, Sir Philip Thingy say no or don't mm-hmm. uh, but yeah well i mean he does try here to say no he does try here but he, he doesn't succeed true i mean what he needs to say is you need to choose between him or me and you need to decide now and i'm not trying to be a jerk about it he's and I, he I, would be a jerk about I it. i know he would i'm just saying what the right response would be would be like listen i think i'm great and i think i will do the best job but you have to – if you want him, then have him and I'll peace out because two doctors are worse than one doctor. Yeah. But anyway, that's it. Back in the kitchen, Daisy's yelling at Ivy. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> she wants her to do the hollandaise sauce while she does the souffles. Daisy leaves the room and then Alfred takes the hollandaise sauce and curdles it on the stove. Yeah. Which if you've ever tried to make a hollandaise is not a good thing. <laughs> Then Daisy comes back in and flips out right. because it's curdled. And then Alfred says that Ivy can handle it and fix the sauce. And Ivy's like, oh, okay, because she has no idea what the hell's going on. Right. Uh, then Alfred walks her through dribbling an egg into it and beating it so that it, it re-unbreaks. Uh, I don't know what we'd call it. Right. And then she passes it off as her own work. But Mrs. Patmore has seen the whole thing. And yeah. Wisely doesn't say anything because Daisy comes back and she's like, oh, my God, you fixed it. And then she tells Daisy to say thank you. And then once Ivy is out of earshot, she says, you know, Alfred's not going to like you any better for you being rough on Ivy. Yeah. Which is a very good point. It is a very good point. No, like, Daisy, all you need to do is wait. Wait until Ivy takes up with Jimmy, mm-hmm. then pick up Alfred on the rebound. Yeah, duh. It's like you've never been the ugly friend before. <laughs> uh, but I do like the way Mrs. Patmore deals with this whole situation. Yes. You know, just sort of lets it develop and, and keeps a light hand. At dinner, Alfred and Jimmy come in arguing over who's going to be carrying the fish because this still has not been worked out yet, apparently. Matthew asks Edith if she has answered the offer of the column from the sketch. Uh, The Dowager Countess, very bitchy about it, says that when can we expect to see you performing on the London stage? I like how she always, like, invokes that, like, it's the worst thing in the world. I mean, it was the worst thing in the world. Yeah, but, you know, Carson turned out all right. (laughs) Well, he was probably just in regional, regional. <laughs> Possibly. Yeah. Which again, Dowager Countess did encourage her to get out there and ruled out gardening. I don't know how many yeah. other possibilities. There's not that much to do. Yeah. But uh, the nurse comes in, thus leading everybody to decide that Sybil's labor has begun. The nurse says nothing. Yeah. She's like one of the silent sisters. <laughs> she, she really is. Uh, like from you, Game of Thrones. Yeah. You just have to look at her face and be like, mm, she looks upset. We'd better go check. Yeah. Back downstairs, Jimmy informs Mrs. Patmore that dinner has been suspended and he doesn't know what to tell her when she asks whether, you know, suspended meaning canceled or suspended meaning keeping it hot. Right. That never really does get answered. <laughs> right. It's true. More important things take over. In the library, 
Dr. Clarkson and Sir Philip Thingy are standing before the family. Dr. Clarkson says that Sybil's ankles are swollen and that, that she is muddled, doesn't seem to be entirely in the present day, and that he is concerned about it. Uh, they say, what does this mean? And Sir Philip says, it means she's having a baby. Come with me, Dr. Clarkson. So they go out to the hall to confer with each other. McGee says, Sir Philip mustn't bully Dr. Clarkson into silence. And Lord Grantham says, oh, this is just professional pride, like a barber wanting to do better than another barber. Maybe if he wasn't so squeamish about anatomy, he would know the difference between a barber and a gynecologist. Yeah, that would be helpful. Um, and Lord Grantham also, in probably his most egregious line of the episode, says that he doesn't want to hurt Sir Philip's feelings. And the Dowager Countess zings back and she's like, I'm... There's one thing I'm quite indifferent to. It's the Philip Tapsell's feelings. Yes, which well said. And and while I'm more of a Grantham apologist in this episode than I think most, there's no excusing that. Yeah. He's just, I mean, Lord Grantham is just totally confident that nothing will go wrong. Well, he's, you know, spared no expense. Right. I would just point out to Lord Grantham that so many things have gone wrong to you in the past few years. You should maybe start getting a little... Maybe he has that memento disease. (laughs) Could be. Out in the hallway, Dr. Clarkson informs Sir Philip Thingy that he thinks that Sybil is toxic with the possibility of eclampsia. And then Tepsil says, basically, look, buddy, if you want to be here, you need to shut the hell up. Which, again... This all could have been avoided by you just putting your foot down and being like, you can't come. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And just, Tepsil is so, he's so overbitey. Like, (laughs) you know, spoiler alert. Yeah. He's just so dismissive. Yeah. And, you know, Dr. Clarkson's very frustrated. Right. Yeah. Well, and again, deciding that Dr. Clarkson shouldn't be allowed there would be a decision we would have supported. Once he's there, though, you have to give, like... You have to give a reason for dismissing his opinion. Yeah. Like, that's the thing. Lord Grantham says that whole thing about uh, Trey's been wanting to be the best at his craft without recognizing that in this case, he's right, but it's Sir Philip that's at fault, yes. not Dr. Clarkson. Indeed. Like, he just is, because he thinks of Dr. Clarkson as a tradesman and Sir Philip as a gentleman. Mm-hmm. And so that's why he, you know, that's why he's so dismissive, yes. which we all know. Anyway, sorry. They need a doula. <laughs> Lord Grantham might explode. <laughs> <laughs> At Crawley House. Uh oh. Waka waka. Ethel's burning dinner. <laughs> she says, Oh, Christmas. That's my favorite new swear. Yeah. It, it is pretty nice. And takes something out of the oven and burns herself, giving a scream that Isabel hears and, and comes down to check on her. And sees the burnt kidney souffle, which she was apparently planning to cook for dinner that night, having seen Mrs. Patmore do it hundreds of times. Seeing someone do something and doing it yourself, two very different things. Yeah. Here's the other thing I would point out. Even if kidney souffle is cooked perfectly, it's still kidney souffle. Also... Isabel, at no point in the proceedings did you say, oh, by the way, Ethel, do you know how to cook? Right. That's an important interview question Mm -hmm. when hiring a cook. Yeah. Do you know how to cook? (laughs) Have you ever cooked anything? Now, I see you've been a prostitute. That's good. (laughs) (laughs) Isabel is a little bitchy about it. Like, not... You'd think having come this far, you'd be a bit more, like, encouraging and forgiving. But she's really not. She really isn't. Yeah. 
So she basically, you know, says she's going to eat the burnt kidney souffle, I guess. I guess that's – she says it's too late to start over unless we want a midnight feast. So, I mean, because that – maybe that means they'll just, like, have bread and, you know, bring yeah. fruit, bring cheese. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, so that was a little weird. Fun fact. Dessert was invented to take the taste of kidney souffle out of Back downstairs, Carson's asking Anna if everything's all right with Sybil, and she said that she thinks so. She's just down to get some more milk in case Sybil wants it. Uh, then Mosley bursts in and tells Carson he's had a letter from Mrs. Bird, who used to work for Mrs. Crawley. Like, this is like the same day. Yeah. And Carson's like, uh, what now? Yeah. And Mosley's like, you better come with me. <laughs> Up in Sybil's room, Branson is talking to her and saying that he has a, a i believe a cousin a brother a brother in liverpool and that maybe they could move there and it would mean working with cars again she says that no they mustn't go backwards and that they can just look up at the stars and it's it's an interesting line because it, it is responsive but you're also starting to see the muddledness yes. that dr clarkson was referring to sir philip says that that's normal but clarkson comes in flanked and followed by the mcgee has her massive bitch face on and it's amazing it is because she does this thing all the time where she has her head like cocked and Uh much of the time it just makes her look like slow but when she combines it with her forcefulness she's like like, a laser it becomes a force to be reckoned with yeah yeah dr clarkson asks to see her latest urine sample Sir Philip attempts to say no, and McGee says, just give the nurse the order, Mm -hmm. and damn. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. And also in this scene, uh, when Clarkson comes to see Sybil, she starts talking about how she's sorry she's not on duty, thinking that it's back during the war Mm -hmm. and she should be a nurse. So no, and actually, the actor who plays Doctor Clarkson, his face in that is awesome. Just like yeah, he does really good work. This, to me, this episode. that's the point. Even before getting the sample of the urine, he's mm-hmm. like, "No, this is not right." Yeah, We're, and like that's the thing. I'm like, Sir Philip, how many women you've delivered have actually like been hallucinating themselves mm-hmm. out of the present moment? I yeah. mean, like, I'll grant you kind of being confused and muddled, you know, in right. a certain sense, right? But not like this. Like yeah. this is like it's scary. Yeah. Yeah. In the Carson cave, uh, Carson is shocked to learn from Mr. Molesley that Isabel has hired a prostitute to manage her house. Mrs. Hughes tries to defend Isabel, but Carson says that now no one respectable can enter the house. And basically, this is actually there are extended scenes. That's right. We haven't seen them all yet. Right. Via PBS, which is like, could you just please commit to a side? Right. For I God's don't even sake. Understand. Like, why is there not a canonical Downton Abbey episode that everybody who wants to show it shows? I don't why? understand. I, I, yeah. Anyway, but Carson says, oh, you know, before you call me a hypocrite, would you ever hire a prostitute to work in this house? Mm-hmm. He's like, mm, and he's like, thank you. Yeah. Slam dunk. Which does definitely adds something to that scene. It does add something to that scene because yeah. she's all like, oh, it's our Ethel. Right. And you're like, yeah, then you fucking fire. Yeah. Uh, anyway, Mrs. Hughes does manage to convince Carson that they just not say anything about it at the, at the moment. And Carson says that, you know, the maids are not to go in the house under any circumstances. And then all of a sudden he's like, oh, God, the footman. <laughs> Don't let the footman in there. <laughs> right. And mostly, like, Mosley's face is amazing because he's just like, oh. <laughs> Like, that was my whole plan. <laughs> well, um, he's a valet. Well, that's true. Valets can uh, <laughs> hookers, right? Yeah, sure. It's the rules. 
<laughs> that's why Thomas wanted the job all those years. <laughs> um, yeah, also, uh, Mrs. Hughes, one of the reasons she says they should keep silent is that she was never much of a cook, and it might just work itself out. Which it already seems like it's well on its way, so. Yeah. Just another great Mrs. Hughes moment. In the library, Clarkson says that Sybil has eclampsia. They ask what it is, and Sir Philip says it's a rare condition that she doesn't have. But they insist that Clarkson say why she think he thinks that. Uh, he says it's because her baby is small, because she is confused, and her urine contains too much albumin, he corrects or clarifies, which is a kind of protein. So what should they do? He says they need to take her to the hospital immediately and deliver the baby by cesarean section. And Matthew asks if it's safe. And Sir Philip says that it is the opposite of the fa- of safe. It would expose Sybil and the baby to untold dangers. Like poor people? <laughs> And I mean, you know, I will say much of my knowledge of medicine at the time is based on actually James Harriet, who wrote about veterinary medicine. Yes. So not entirely applicable. But I mean, it is correct to say a cesarean section is a dangerous choice. I mean, even today when it's so standardized, it's, you know, uh-huh. not the best option. Yeah. And and back then, I mean, it was a real risk that that should only be taken in serious circumstances. Yes. Or if you're Macduff. <laughs> right. Or, right, if there's a prophecy to, to take care of, yeah, yeah, yeah. then, yeah. and, you know, Clarkson says that it may not work, but that, you know, that it's the only chance, but Sir Philip says that the, C- the C-section is more dangerous, and I believe it's, somebody points out that they need to ask Tom, mm-hmm. that it's his decision to make. McGee points this out. Yeah, McGee points out that, the, that it should be Tom, and McGee says that he did not hire Sir Philip, and he is not master in this house, uh, and... The Dowager Countess says, well, don't look at me. She's quite right. The decision is up to the chauffeur, Mm -hmm. which is a really nice line. Yes. Because she's, you know, making clear to Lord Grantham, just like, yes, even by your own standards, you are wrong. Yeah. Downstairs, uh, Mrs. Hughes asks Anna how it's all going, and she says that the doctors are arguing, which is never a good sign. (laughs) Ho, ho, and how. Yeah. Out in the hallway upstairs... Uh, Sir Philip insists to Branson that Sybil is fine. Dr. Clarkson is making his case, but he's, he's, Branson asks him if he can swear that taking Sybil to the hospital will, will save her, and of course he can't. Mm-hmm. Uh, and McGee, who is just on the verge of falling apart this whole time, mm-hmm. is desperately, desperately trying to get her point across. Tom asks her so she would take Sybil to the hospital, and she says, I would have taken her to the hospital an hour ago. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, my God. Tom's getting a little work class, everybody. <laughs> yeah, this it's it's going to be okay. Yeah. Then there's a scream from Sybil, and everyone runs off to see her. Back at Crawley House, <laughs> the Benny Hill theme song is playing. And <laughs> Ethel brings tea into Isabel, who's, who's seated at her desk, and she asks if there's any news from the house. Isabel says no, and Matthew said he would call, you know, if it wasn't too late. Um, Isabel drinks her tea and is quite put out. She asks what was in it, and apparently Ethel put honey in it, which I don't even understand. She's been a maid forever. Doesn't she right. know how to make tea? You would think. I just... Uh, anyway. anyway, Ethel asks, you know, was that not right? And Isabel says, no, it's fine, but maybe not another time. Yeah. Which again, like, you're training a new maid. Like, right. you, you can tell her things. Yeah, well, and it, I think this, it's, it's really more the, the portrayal of these, like, all the same dialogue could have been delivered in a different tone and would have felt much better. Mm-hmm. But just the look on her face the whole time, she just has this, like, she's just, I don't know. 
It's just proof you can't teach an old whore new tricks. <laughs> I'm just kidding. You totally can. <laughs> if any horrors are listening. Yeah. Charge extra. <laughs> In the library, Lord Grantham asks if the Dowager Countess wants anything, and she says, just a healthy baby and a car to take her home. He asks Branson, and Branson just says he feels helpless. And Matthew says that men are always helpless when a baby's in the picture. Uh, but then Mary bursts in and says they can all come up. The baby's a girl and everyone is fine. Shoo! Okay. Yeah. So everything worked out great, everybody. <laughs> Stop the podcast now. No more podcast. <laughs> Upstairs. It's a baby. Oh, my God. It is a cute, cute baby. Yeah. Branson and Sybil are so lovey-dovey and it is so adorable. Mm. It's absolutely wonderful. McGee and, and Mary and Edith are just kind of standing there awkwardly, right. as you do. Right. Uh, and Sybil says she really just wants to go to sleep. And McGee says, well, you've earned it. <laughs> <laughs> Which is weird, but still sweet. Yeah. Uh, so Sir Philip thingy comes in and says they should let her sleep. He shakes Branson's hand to say, well done. And like, what? He didn't do anything, <laughs> you dickhead. Yeah. Uh, so everybody kind of leaves the room. The nurse comes and takes the baby out. And Sybil tells McGee about the conversation with Branson about him wanting to go back to Liverpool. And she says that, you know, he must move forward and that, you know, will, will McGee help her do battle mm-hmm. uh, for Tom and the baby if, if they need to? Because she's worried yeah. that Lord Grantham will see them moving to Liverpool as a solution right. to the problem of them being there and being Catholic and right. everything. Embarrassing him. Yes. So McGee says, you know, that your father loves you very much, and, and Sybil says she loves him terribly. And I'm like, do you? Really? Yeah. He's not really done anything good for you. Should reconsider. But anyway, uh, McGee, you know, says says that Sybil should get some sleep, and she kisses her finger and bops her nose, and it's just very, very cute. It is. It is. In the hall, McGee kisses Lord Grantham and apologizes for doubting. Uh, Sir Philip says it's generally best to forget everything that was said during the waiting period. Dr. Clarkson looks uh, very annoyed with him. Yes. Um, and says, let's all go to bed and meet again in the morning refreshed. Down in the servants' hall, the servants are all waiting for the news. And Thomas uh, asks Jimmy to show him a card trick, which yeah. I guess is what they're calling it nowadays. He says, show us a card trick, Jimmy, <laughs> which is going to be my new pickup line. From now on. <laughs> uh, well, you might want to make it more gender appropriate, but okay. I, I play by my own rules, Kelly. Okay. <laughs> Thomas's? Because things won't end well for you. Also, I never use pickup lines, so it's really no risk. <laughs> That's true. We are married, after all. It's true. You don't need to pick me up. No, I don't. I'm always here. <laughs> Carson announces uh, that the baby is a girl, and he sends everyone to bed. Thomas is just flying high. He is. He's so excited. He says it's great news, and, and Jimmy asks if he knew Sybil, and he says, yeah, yeah, you know, we worked together during the war, so I know her better than... All of them, he says, which I took to mean the people upstairs, mm, yeah. um, which is probably true, yeah. with the exception of Branson. Mm-hmm. And he says, you know, she's a lovely person, like you. And he squeezes Jimmy Kent's arm, and he, like, you know, skips away. <laughs> yeah. Then O'Brien sees that Jimmy's looking perturbed again, has correctly deduced that it is not about a clock this time. <laughs> uh, so she, she asks what's the matter, and he says that Thomas is just too familiar with him, and she says it's a good sign, you know, if he gets in with him, you know, he's got the air of his lordship. Basically the same, it, it, right, it's right, like right. the second and third scenes with the witches in Macbeth. Yeah, well, except she actually, I noticed much different in this scene just her attitude. Like, she, I found her being on his side much more plausible in this scene than yeah. the previous one. Okay. So I just wanted to say that she kind of corrected that a little bit. 
he he says that he wants to tell him to keep his distance and o'brien says what do you want to get your marching orders All right and he's like oh no and she's like wait a minute are you playing something unseemly uh which he denies despite the fact that he totally is yeah. and then runs off in true jimmy kent style <laughs> yes abrupt cut Mary runs into her parents' room and wakes them up and says to come quick. It's Sybil. Mm-hmm. In Sybil's room, she's panting and she's saying, I have to get up. I have to get up. Uh, while Branson tries to keep her calm and keep her in bed. <sighs> she starts to scream yeah. that her head hurts and, and is smacking it, even though Mary is trying to kind of bathe it with a cold compress, which yeah. this scene really upsets me as a sufferer of migraines. I have done this exact thing. It's true. Like, I have done this exact thing, and it's terrifying. Yeah. Because you don't know yeah. what is going on. Yeah. So, Lord Grantham and McGee rush in as, as Sybil just starts to choke. Mm-hmm. And Lord Grantham, you know, still only re- referring to Dr. Uh, <laughs> Philip Tepsel. Yeah. He wants to know what's happening. Uh, hey, guess what? Turns out it's eclampsia, mm-hmm. just like Dr. Clarkson's been saying all along. Yeah. Uh, Matthew starts yelling at the doctors to do something, but even Dr. Clarkson allows that there's just nothing to be done once these seizures have started. Right. And Matthew has a really great line about, you know, that's impossible, not these days, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is just chilling to think about how little real advancement in medicine there had been at this point. Mm-hmm. You know, they're still kind of operating by the seat of their pants. Yeah, yeah. Um, everybody's just yelling and screaming and, and saying, you know, isn't there anything we can do? Branson's trying to get Sybil to breathe, and McGee is just sitting next to, to Branson and crying. And then, like, you see Mary just recoil. Yeah. And you get a shot of Sybil, and she's died. Yeah. Everybody is crying. Everybody, yeah. It's one of the worst things I've ever seen. Yeah. It's, and it's... It's so well done. It's so well done. I mean, that's the thing about it, because... You know, it seems like on the one hand, you know, killing off a character is sort of a cheap way to get a reaction, but they don't, they don't do it cheaply. They, mm-hmm. well, and, and they actually show it happening. They show it happening. They show everybody's reactions and everybody's reactions are their own and individual. Mm-hmm. Um, Dr. Clarkson, this whole scene is just almost expressionless. Well, what can he do? Because he knows that it's, do- he knows it's over mm-hmm. and he's been in this position, you know, how many times over yeah. the course of his career? Of just being with somebody who's dying, knowing that he can't help them. Well, that's the thing about Sir Philip Tepsall. I'm like, have you never lost a patient in childbirth? Mm-hmm. Like, I just wonder about his his credentials, right. you know, because women were still routinely dying in childbirth at this point. Right, right. So how is he so confident and so, you know... Yeah, yeah. Like, unless it's just a, a class blindness thing that, you know, dying in childbirth is something that peasants do. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, Lord Grantham... And, you know, props to Hugh Bonneville on this because he looks completely devastated. Yeah. And he's just looking at his daughter and says, this can't be. She's 24 years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, again, true displaying all of the investment of reality in reality that we've come to expect <laughs> from him. But everybody's just. <laughs> he also wanted McGee to be like, uh, she's 27. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, everybody's just in shock. And then the yeah. baby starts crying in the other room and everybody's like, oh, shit. We forgot there's also this baby that will forever be a living reminder of this horrible night that we've just experienced. And it's, you know, and just Branson in this scene. He just keeps telling her to breathe and he just keeps saying, you know, wake up. Yeah. And just nobody can. Yeah. It's so sad. It's, it's, 
it's, it's the saddest. It's really, really sad. And well, and again, I had been spoiled on this, mm-hmm. and I, you know, the fan reaction was so negative that I thought they must have done it in some stupid way. Right. But I thought it was done really well. I agree. This is just one of the best moments that this entire show has had. I agree wholeheartedly. Yeah. And Maggie Smith wasn't even in it. <laughs> yeah. So it should get extra points. Yeah. <sighs> well, let's uh, let's take a step back here with one of our recurring segments with our resident medical marvel, Tom Schneider. <laughs> Thanks, Kelly. For Tom Repeats History. I'm sorry. I'm so <laughs> yeah. I'm so emotionally upset right now. <laughs> I, I can't. I can't remember what this stuff is called. Well, how about some dry historical information? <gasps> that would really help dry my tears. <laughs> hey. Yeah, so I, I looked into what the sort of state of medicine was at this time, and I actually had more trouble with this than I expected to. Like, Wikipedia didn't really give me anything. Uh, just to give you an example of the sort of sites I was finding, <laughs> here's a paragraph from a site that came up on the first page of Google searches. Quote, During the 1920s, medicine was a big factor, not only medicine, but doctors in general. If it weren't for the discovery of medicine before World War I, there would have been way more death rates, but since there was medicine, it was not as high. Also, even after World War I, medicine was there to get rid of colds and diseases. (laughs) Actually, medicine still can't get rid of colds. That's right. Also, in case you had been wor- worried that after World War One medicine ceased existing, <laughs> this title uh, cleared up. Or for in you. case you thought <laughs> that there was no such thing as medicine prior to World War One, <laughs> that must be uh, the medical text used by Sir Philip Thingy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But in any case, so what, what I did start to find some things. Uh, so basically, medicine at this point was kind of in a transition state between the complete nonsense that it was for most of human history and the science that it is today. Going back to like 1796 was when they discovered a vaccination for smallpox. That was one of the first things that anybody came up with medically that was like really very useful to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Also, note. Do not visit the Wikipedia page for smallpox. I cannot emphasize this enough. <laughs> um, but that was the last thing that anybody figured out how to vaccinate until diphtheria in 1923. Oh, wow. Yeah. Then in the 1860s, Pasteur and Lister started figuring out about anti- antiseptic techniques, and Lister in particular really made the point that surgery needed to be done cleanly mm-hmm. and that that was why it was so dangerous. And that we should all have a mouth mouth rinse that kills <laughs> harmful bacteria that causes the <laughs> that causes gingivitis. I'm oh, yeah. sorry. I fucked that up completely. Well, <laughs> these are the jokes because it's only sad from here on out, people. That, that's right. Well, we're not getting sponsored by them anyway, so fuck it. Yet. <laughs> not anymore now. <laughs> So that that was another real advance that that changed things. But as of 1920, according to a, uh, I believe, a Harvard professor, patients had less than a 50-50 chance of benefiting from seeing a doctor. Antibiotics started to be uh, in wide use by World War II, and that's what really launched the modern age. Uh, so that's we're still in that pre-era mm-hmm. at this point. What was going on in the 20s? 
that were changing things. Urbanization was the big thing that really changed the way medicine was practiced because once people were concentrated in the cities, uh, there could be more specialization. I mean, there were hospitals, first of all, and hospitals could have specialists. For example, anesthesiologists or anesthetists, as they're known in Britain, apparently, they finally started to exist rather than just being something that a doctor would happen to know about on the side and do for themselves. Uh, and in fact, in most of the world, except for Britain, it wasn't doctors doing it. It would be nurses or mm-hmm. junior assistants or things like that. But Britain was finally actually, to ha- <clears throat> actually having full-time an- anesthetists at this point. Another big change during the 20s in medicine was the rise of women. Uh, as women got the right to vote, they immediately began demanding better uh, mother and child care, mm-hmm. essentially. There was an act in 1921 called the Shepherd-Towner Act. This is in America, which you'll notice right after women got the right mm-hmm. to vote. Uh, this act came out and provided funds for maternal and child health programs throughout the country. Although in 1927, the AMA did kill that off because it was competition. That's insane. Yeah. They uh, they're a problematic group, uh, and the other big change was that nursing became a much larger profession. There were many more nurses, partly because after World War One, they, they had were, an excess yeah, of, they, of talent. Yeah, um, and so that became to be uh, a, a more common profession and a more respected and a more involved profession. They began doing more mm-hmm. nurses at this time, and birth control started to edge out into the open. Of course. Giving any information about birth control was illegal in America at right. this time, as we know. Uh, but apparently, according to one thing I saw, it was actually advertised pretty widely just under the euphemism of feminine hygiene. Yes. But I think we talked about that I, a bit. I, I couldn't remember what we discussed about that, but I did just see this thing while yeah. I was looking around. Uh, and it said that uh, largely diaphragms and contraceptive douches. Yes. Which did make me think that it might be possible for a woman to get away with using a contraceptive douche without her husband finding out. That's true. So that might be a, an option for people. Yeah, World War One had led to great advances in like surgery and trauma care. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was much better, but in sort of disease had not really advanced very much. And like I say, penicillin and the antibiotics came in uh, later. But I did just want to give a, a bit about that history because it's actually more interesting than I thought. Uh, basically, the story that we know about penicillin that you know people know it is that uh, Sir Alexander Fleming discovered it completely by accident in 1928 when he accidentally left a petri dish open and mold grew on it, and he realized it was killing the bacteria. Mm-hmm. But the fact is, first of all, that wasn't the first antibiotic uh, that became widely used because nobody started using penicillin for another 14 years after Alexander Fleming discovered it, mm-hmm. uh, and in 1935. Gerhard Domach in Germany, who you've never heard of, uh, spent years trying different things and experimenting with different things in mice before finally finding what became known as sulfa drugs, which actually worked and were an effective antibiotic and killed a patient. And he did not do it by accident. He actually did the work for years and years and created it and made it happen and available. And it was only after that that penicillin was kind of rediscovered. Uh, the other thing that's interesting about Alexander Fleming's discovery of penicillin in 1928 is that, in fact, it had been repeatedly noticed over the years that penicillin was an antibiotic. Uh, as far back as 
1875, John Tyndall published a Royal Society paper about it. Uh, Joaquim Montero Caminoa in Brazil in 1877 published about it. Vincenzo Tiberia in Naples in 1895. Uh, Ernest Duchesne in 1897, although his paper was rejected by the Institut Pasteur because he was too young. So they didn't publish that one. What? Uh, and even Joseph Lister in 1871 noticed that penicillin weakened microbes, but didn't really pursue it. It was just something that he noticed in, in the way of doing other things. Uh, this is so disheartening. The message is, everyone, <laughs> never try to do anything to better the situation of humanity because some assholes are just going to shoot you down. <laughs> right. And even Fleming himself, actually in 1931, became convinced that penicillin uh, wasn't going to work, that it wasn't, excuse me, going to live long enough in the human body. Although he did a few years later change his mind back on that again and continue advocating it. He was all this time advocating for people to study it more and and find a way to make it useful. Uh, But nobody really listened to him until about 1939. Uh, 1939, actually the year that Gerhard Domag won the Nobel Prize in Medicine. And then in 1945, Fleming, along with Ernst Chain and Howard Florey, who actually made penicillin useful, uh, they all got the Nobel for Medicine in 1945. Okay. Uh, also, just a reminder to everybody, if you are prescribed a course of antibiotics, be sure to take the whole course. Yes. For, uh... Antibiotics, great invention, now becoming uh, less effective. And that's bad news for everyone. It really is. Remember the Spanish flu? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So so read the instructions on the bottle and, and please do follow them. Yes. Um, yeah. Uh, just a few other things. Uh, insulin was invented during the 20s, so that was a major advance. And nutrition became very studied at mm-hmm. this point. Uh, most of the vitamins were discovered during the 20s. And just one random thing that I came across, uh, somebody mentioning, somebody was telling a story about their grandmother in the 20s going to Germany to get radiation therapy for cancer. Uh, and actually, radiation therapy goes back to the 1890s for as a cancer treatment, huh. which I just sort of assumed it was a more recent development, but it wasn't. So Predates uh, the widespread use of antibiotics. Yeah, yeah. That's so interesting. Like. What's so funny to me about medicine in general is, you know, the more you learn about it, the more you realize that doctors provided almost a talismanic function Mm -hmm. throughout most of human history. I mean, if you go back to the Romans and Greeks, you know, with the humors and everything, like, they were just guessing. They had no knowledge or expertise whatsoever, and it's just staggering when you realize how late it's been in human development that Mm -hmm. we've had any real concept of what causes illness and how to go about circumventing it. Right. Well, one of the things I said said that up to about this time, the doctor performed much the same role as the village clergyman. Mm -hmm. You know, it was there to provide comfort and sort of general advice, and beyond that, you know, he, he'd do his best, but he couldn't necessarily well, do anything for you. Well, and that's what you. is odd to me. We're at this weird crux in this episode of Downton Abbey because I think Lord Grantham is definitely looking at Sir Philip in that way. Mm-hmm. Where he's like, no, 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 as long as he's here, nothing can happen. Right. Whereas throughout the course of the series, we've seen the advances in medicine, mm-hmm. you know, and the mm-hmm. way that Dr. Clarkson has adapted yeah. in a lot of ways. Yeah. And so, you know, it's it's this terrible nexus because Lord Grantham is in a situation where both, A, he thinks as long as you have a doctor there, that's going to be fine. And B, the same as, you know, Matthew sort of articulates that, you know, 
oh, we're in these modern times, you know, right. nothing could possibly well, happen. And and the the telling conversation downstairs about whether having to have your baby in the city or mm-hmm. at home, I mean, that's really it's at this moment that that is changing. Yes. Up till then, home was clearly better. Now the city is better. And what Lord Grantham ends up doing is taking the worst of both worlds. True. Yeah. Well, that's been a welcome diversion. <laughs> yeah. Now let us dive once again headlong into our <laughs> grief. Yes. Downstairs in the servants' hall, we see essentially the reaction to Carson telling all the servants the news. And this is one case where I do think the coming in in the middle was the right choice mm-hmm. uh, for this particular scene. I wondered, and I, this didn't actually bother me, I just thought it was odd, if they're all sleeping upstairs, that they would all... I mean, I yeah, they've done this several times, yeah, but, but I, mean, I don't I'm know. I'm sure there, there's no big room upstairs. It's probably so. just protocol. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in any case, uh, Daisy asks if there's anything they should do, and he says they must carry on. Thomas leaves the room, Anna follows after him, and uh, Mrs. Hughes gives Daisy a hug. So off in this hallway, Thomas is just, like, weeping. Yeah. And again, Rob Collier James. Yeah. Like, screw Hugh Bonneville, screw right. every other guy in this series right now. Uh, yeah, he I think, really deserves to be nominated for something. I think it's an easy call this series that mm-hmm. he's the best male actor. Yeah, I don't agreed. think that's a question. So he's he's crying, Anna, because she is a saint, Yeah, comes in to comfort this man who's tried to destroy her happiness on more than one occasion. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and Thomas tries to sort of put on this brave face and he says he doesn't know why he's crying because Sybil wouldn't notice if he had died. And then Anna says that he doesn't mean that. And so he says that he knows and he just loses it, as do we all yeah. currently right now. <laughs> yeah. And he says he could tell Anna that there weren't many people in his life who'd been kind to him, but Sybil was one. And and Anna kind of hugs him, and and then yeah. Mrs. Hughes comes in, and they kind of try to straighten up, yeah, yeah, pull it together. And she says, she says that the sweetest spirit under this roof is gone. Don't mind me; I'm weeping myself, yeah. and it is just so sad. It's really, really sad. Oh my god! Yeah. And then she goes and talks to Carson, and he just looks completely shell shocked. I mean, he just looks like he can't even see a foot in front of his face. Yeah. And so she asks if he's okay, and he just—it's funny because his reaction is so similar to Lord Grantham's. Yeah. You know, yeah. and he says, "You know, I knew her all her life. You see, since she was born." Yeah. And then they just hold hands, and it's so sad. Yeah. That's pretty much all we're going to say for the rest of this podcast is this is what happened. It was sad. We have no jokes. Yeah. We have a scene with McGee talking to Sybil's body. And this scene, I want to say that, not McGee, I want to say Elizabeth McGovern Mm -hmm. hits this scene out of the park in an unbelievable way. Because the scene, it's just her face, dead center, looking right at the camera, essentially. Mm -hmm. Like and motionless and this makes up for every other horrible bit of acting she's done yeah to date yeah um but yeah she she tells sybil that they'll look after branson and the baby and mary comes in and says that it's time for bed but mcgee says that she'll stay up because it's her last chance to say goodbye to her baby 
Um, Mary offers to stay unless she'd rather be alone, and McGee says she'd prefer to be alone. And Mary starts to leave, and she says, Oh, and Mary, tell Lord Grantham to sleep in the dressing room. Because, boom! Yeah. And McGee says that Sybil will always be your baby. <sighs> ah, it's so sad! Yeah. Oh. Anyway, apropos of nothing. <laughs> yeah. The next day. A walrus heaves into view. <laughs> The walrus is Murray. Goo-goo-goo-choo. <laughs> it was not Paul as originally reported in the song Glass Onion. All right, so Murray's there, and Matthew's talking to him and saying, you know, Anna will come in and see you, but Lord Grantham can't see anybody that day. And Murray says, oh, I knew something must have happened. There was no car to pick me up at the station. And, you know, he says that he's very sorry uh, as awkwardly as you would expect right. when there's that's, been a sudden death and you're like, oh. That's that's an awkward situation. So Anna comes into the library and then Matthew asks Murray if he can have a word with him before he goes. Um, and then Murray apologizes to Anna for, for troubling her on a day such as this and she says, you know, you weren't to know, none of us were to know. Right. As soon as we stop crying, <laughs> there's another thing to make us cry. Yeah. So up... In Sybil's room, uh, Branson is kneeling by uh, Sybil, and Edith tells him that the men from Grasby's have come, and he says to take her away, and Mary says yes, and we must let them. And then Mary comes up and kisses Sybil goodbye, as does Edith, and Branson's gone off to stare into the corner. And Mary says that Sybil was the only person who thought that they were such nice people. Edith says, do you think we might get along better in the future? And Mary says, I doubt it. But <sighs> says that as, since that this is the last time the three of them will be together in this world, that they should love each other now as sisters should. And they hug, and sh- hug each other and, and leave, uh, leave Tom alone with Sybil. You started calling him Tom, Tom. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Uh, there's a scene where Anna explains this thing with Mrs. Bartlett to Murray. We're not going to talk about that. Yeah. Because uh, next what happens, Branson, you know, walks up to Sybil's body, his wife that he loves so much, and he just starts crying. Yeah. It's, it's unimaginably awful. These are fictional characters. I know. We know that, okay? We know. We <laughs> yeah. just, we like them a lot. Yeah. Even though we were mad at Branson last episode. Fine then now. Yeah. Fine. Down in the library, uh, Matthew is talking with Murray and says it's not really the right time to discuss the management of Downton. But Murray says, regardless of the time, it is music to his ears. Tough times are coming for these estates. Things must be done. Business terms must be spoken. And at this point, Mary comes in and overhears them and is quite upset that they would be discussing such a subject uh, at this time. And without Lord Grantham. And without Lord Grantham, when he is quite unable to see or speak to them. Matthew, you know, says, sorry, I wasn't thinking, but she is quite upset, and they have a big old fight about it. And the one thing that I don't understand, like, I do a lot of work rationalizing whatever Mary does. (laughs) You know, this is what I do. Her blind spot for Lord Grantham is the one thing that I don't, 
And I feel like it's come out more in this. It has because, because they need it to. Yeah. But there's so, I, her defensive tradition and the old way of doing things and all this sort of thing I can get behind. But Lord Grantham specifically, she knows full well that he's a complete prat. Yeah. And I, it's, there's no point. I don't see how she could not admit that. No arguments here. I know. Do you like Lord Grantham? Well, Please, she says, write in and tell us. She says, it's bad enough that Lord Grantham has lost his daughter. Must he lose control of his estate on the same day? I'm like, uh, he actually lost control of his estate a while ago when he invested all that money in that shoddy railroad. Yes. Like, that already happened. Yes, indeed. But, in any case. <sighs> all right, last murder prison. I'm just going to get the highlights. <laughs> so Murray's are talking to Bates. Bates is sad about Lady Sybil. Uh, Murray well, he says he is no expression or emotion, but he says he is. Yeah. Uh, so Murray says he'll he'll do his best to try and contact Mrs. Bartlett and, and get her testimony and blah blah blah. Then Craig and the Mustache Man imply that they've killed Mrs. Bartlett. They seem to imply that. Which, good lord, Bates is right there. Kill him. That's true. So much easier. It is so much easier. Mrs. Bartlett didn't do anything wrong. That's true. I mean, I guess Bates technically didn't either in this scenario, but we're tired of him. Shank him. <laughs> Why couldn't it have been Bates? Yeah. Why did it have to be Sybil? Uh, the Dowager Countess arrives at Downton and sees Branson there, or sorry, and sees Carson standing at the door uh, and says, oh, Carson, we've seen some troubles, but nothing worse than this. And then she walks away. And starts crying for a second and has to stop and steady herself and then walk away. And we have a great shot of her walking uh, laboriously across the hall. And she just for the first time looks her age. Yeah. She just looks so old. And yeah. like we can't even really explain why this was the best thing that ever happened. Yeah. Like, but it was just so good. It was. Like, this should be her Emmy clip. Yeah. You know, like that yeah. by itself was so good. Yeah. And just, I'm like getting chills just thinking about how good it was. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Because I mean, and this, that whole, you know, a whole long shot of her just from behind, mm-hmm. basically just her silhouette from behind. But and it was she conveys so, so much. Yeah. She pulls her veil back and is, is trying to get herself together. Like yeah. it's just, it's really nice work. Yeah. On Maggie Smith's part. Yeah. So the Dowager Countess goes into the parlor uh, of the embroidery pillows, and and Lord Grantham tells her that they've found a nurse for the baby who will be there very soon. Uh, the Dowager Countess asks where Branson is, and Edith says he's upstairs. She's asked if he wants anything, but he says no. The McGee stands up, and she's just, like, seething. She's yeah. just... Like, if she was a laser before, she's yeah. like a raging wildfire now. Yeah. She stands up and she says he wants his wife back, but that's what he can't have. And then she says out loud to everybody that she has to write to Dr. Clarkson uh, before dinner. And everybody's like, what are you talking about? And she's like, I need to apologize for my behavior or for our uh, behavior, for, uh, yeah. because if we listen to him, Sybil might still be alive. And she... But your father and oh, but Sir- your father and Sir Philip knew better, and then she just yeah. bounces. She yeah. like takes off, and yeah. and the Dowager Countess is very confused because she wasn't there for right. all of the the yeah. the fallout. So she asks Lord Grantham what all that was about, 
And she says, oh, you know, when, when tragedy strikes, we always try to find someone to blame. And in mm-hmm. the absence of a suitable candidate, we usually blame ourselves. She says, you know, this is no one's fault. You know, our darling Sybil is dead. Uh, she died in childbirth like too many women before her. Yeah. Which you just see, like, the years yeah. and years that this woman has lived and how many of her friends and relatives, mm-hmm. how many times was she worried that she herself was in danger of dying mm-hmm. in childbirth? It's just... Yeah. It's just staggering. Yeah. Uh, but Lord Grantham, in a rare show of self-awareness, admits to her that there is actually some mm. truth in it. She tries to tell him, no, that can't be true. Yeah. And he says, no. He's like, there really is some truth in it. And she just, the look on her face. Yeah. Because I'm assuming, you know, she wasn't privy to a lot of the, the conversations, but she just can't believe right. Right. that that could be. Yeah. And then we get a shot through the window of Branson holding his baby and then it just kind of zooms out and shows him just engulfed in this huge house that isn't his yeah with a baby with no mother and it's just <sighs> yeah just a powerhouse of an episode it really is so yeah here we are um you know one thing i wanted to do was give my not exactly a defense of lord grantham but i just wanted to give because he you know, certainly clearly was wrong. Mm-hmm. Certainly almost all the blame goes on Sir Philip because I, I, he's not without blame and it's good that he knows that. Mm-hmm. Um, and McGee should be as angry at him as she yes. is. She's totally justified. Anybody who's, who's furious with Lord Grantham is fine as far as I'm concerned. I would just say that one, he's a follower, not a leader. He never wanted to be in charge and he's been stuck with it his whole life. Two, Sir Philip was a real doctor. A real doctor standing there telling him the opposite of what another doctor was telling mm-hmm. him. That's Nobody should ever be faced with that situation. Nobody should ever be asked to choose between two doctors, both of whom are telling you that the other one will kill your daughter. Both alike in dignity. <laughs> well, perhaps. In fair Yorkshire, where we lay our scene. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, what... Can you imagine facing that scenario? I can't. I can't. Like, that is... That's why I'm going to have a doula. <laughs> right. Um, you know, and that's that's where I think that the Dowager Countess is right in her telling him not to blame himself. Mm-hmm. You know, just because that was an impossible situation. Now, he should recognize how he got himself into the impossible situation. Mm-hmm. He bears from some responsibility for getting himself there. But, you know, certainly the loss of his daughter is far more of a price than he deserves. Yes, absolutely. In this scenario. Yeah. Yeah, but a great episode. Yeah, great episode, which brings us to the Abbey Awards. A bit of a somber affair. Indeed. Uh, as such, we have decided to suspend both the Gibson Guy slash Girl Awards and the Backy. Right. Because, frankly, we watched this episode at least two and a half times. Yeah. Didn't we weren't looking what at the clothes at all. Yeah. Not even a bit. Yeah. Like, what? We're going to say Civil look terrible? <laughs> Shut the fuck up, you heartless monster. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so we'll kick it off with best evasion. Hands down, this goes to Sybil's nurse for <laughs> not ever saying anything to anyone. Indeed. Well, there was no way to come out of that looking good. So way yeah. to way to keep way to keep it to the background. She was like, you know what? <laughs> <laughs> this I is all the makings this. of a fiasco. Uh, next up, best overbite. I mean, again, duh. Yeah, Sir Philip Tepsall. That's right. AKA Sir Philip Thingy. That's right. Fuck that guy. Here, here. This 
I've been angry at best overbite winners in the past, <laughs> but this guy really takes the placenta. He d- <laughs> yes. Uh, worst decision. Again. Lord Grantham. Well, I have to say, this due award, we've only had it three weeks, and each week it has been a spectacularly bad yes. decision. Uh, and then finally, yes. the Maggie Smith scale of Maggie Smith. Five all the way. Five. This was easily. Maggie Smith at her most Maggie Smithiest. Yeah. It was just, it's the reason, it's just the reason for Downton Abbey. Right. In so many ways. Yeah. You know? And yeah. she wasn't even in the best scene of the episode. Right. It's true. Like, she wasn't in it that much. She didn't, you know, she had a few singer type lines, but, but not that much. But just the gravitas but, she brought to it. Yeah. Was and just. And again, <sighs> the things that she brought to it, her, the history of her character mm-hmm. that she showed. Yes. Without telling really amazing yeah so yes that brings us to the end of this recap of downton abbey series three episode five no idea where they're going with all this i have no clue i mean i i'd like to say i'm optimistic but the show has been so up and down this year Uh like for all i know next week is just gonna all be set in murder prison with bates's new cellmate fake patrick (laughs) (laughs) and then in zombie civil (laughs) she comes and busts them all out <laughs> that would be great if fake Patrick went. I would welcome fake Patrick <laughs> at this point. This is terrible. Yeah. This cannot be. But it's not even season four. <laughs> it's true. But it's not going to be Sybil. It's not going to be Sybil. Sybil is gone. She was great. We wish Jessica Brown Finley all the best Indeed. in her film career. We're going to miss her presence on this show. Yes. Absolutely. Hats off to Baron Julian for uh, sending her off in a pretty spectacular fashion. Yeah. And just really full marks to, to you know, for all the, the shit we give him, this episode paid for it all. Really well done. Yeah. So I think that's about it. So until next time, up, up yours, yours downstairs. downstairs. Luncheon out.